VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, November the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. So as you heard from Brian Mador, a whole load of weather warnings in effect today. Wind, rain, snow. Given all of that, you know, so the West Coast Ferries and Marine Atlantic all tied up today, storm bound. But you just wonder what's going to become of the folks who are and now I guess the total of about 30 people who are the residents of Tent City with the winter weather pending. It's just... I don't know. It's on my mind. I don't know if it's on yours, because homelessness is nothing new. But the heightened focus, given the, that uh, tent city, which first popped up on Confederation Hill, now behind the Colonial Building, and the stories like that right across the country, some of the long-term solutions for monies for housing and what have you will indeed uh, go a long way to impacting the homelessness issue and the housing crisis. But it's the short-term solutions. It's the immediacy of the concern. That's the big deal in many people's minds. So anyway, you want to take on anything on that front you know what to do uh one of the province's absolute best athletes ever liam hickey has been appointed pardon me he's been announced that he's going to be part of team canada again to play in the 2023 para cup liam of course played for his country in wheelchair basketball and in sledge hockey or para hockey so congratulations one more time to liam hickey love that kid all right Coming up very shortly, a milestone anniversary for the Felians Athletic Association, approaching 125 years. So, obviously, everyone knows the rich tradition of the Felians. So, now they've got a logo competition on the go. So, they're asking you to incorporate, you know, some of the rich tradition with a modern flair regarding the Felians. And everyone refers to the Felians, of course, as the double blues. So... Here's the, co- the colors that they use for the double blues. Oxford blue, Pantone 282. Cambridge blue, Pantone 284. So they want you to use those shades, but come up with a modern twist on the rich history of the Felians. So approaching 125 years of athleticism, camaraderie, and the social club that it is also today. So if you're interested in participating, they want you to submit your creativity, your passion, your design, or a graphic to an email address. It's felians125 at gmail.com. The deadline for mission is december the 20th of this year so if you are part of the felians or you're just simply interested in entering the logo competition the deadline is approaching december 20 of this year just a suggestion on that front you know i've long thought when you look at the competition that is the rowing races on kitty vitty lake the first wednesday of august the regatta the royal st john's regatta it might be interesting to incorporate on top of all the mercantile races and the like something that is targeted right at these athletic associations with the long rich traditions and tons of alma mater so whether it be like the felians and the guards and holy cross and saint bonds maybe incorporate some minor hockey kind of challenges to really amp up the competitive nature of the races that might be something fun All right. I don't know if you've ever been to the So-Key Grocery on Duckworth Street. It's been there since 1986. Of course, the people behind it also were part of managing the Magic Walk restaurant. And now they're closing the doors. It's time to retire. It's a terrific little shop. You can only hope that someone picks up where the folks have, uh, current owners, uh, Rennie's So, has left off because that's going to be absolutely missed for people looking for some of that Chinese cookware and flair and ingredients. So the So-Key Grocery set to close their doors. 
really unfortunate. Anyway, I've been there since 1986. An institution on Duckworth Street. Okay, so we talk about the needs of the folks who are living in Tent City and so many other people. We've seen the uh, food bank usage numbers and the folks who are reaching out to different organizations, not-for-profits, to try to get a leg up and a bit of support. Today is Giving Tuesday. It's the largest uh, global movement for fundraising initiatives. Some 90 countries are involved. Across Canada, some 58 communities have big efforts in place today to try to encourage folks to donate online. So last year, there was $50 million raised online over the course of 24 hours. So there's a bunch of different organizations that are uh, really pushing it today. And if you're representing any of those, you're welcome to call us. Some of these organizations have matching dollars that they're going to be able to put in place to uh, earmark for their various programs and services. So Giving Tuesday, big deal. If you want to take it on and talk about it, you know what to do. Okay. Yesterday we had a call to kick off the program talking about the involvement of private corporations not in delivering healthcare services like hip and knee replacements or the like or private MRI clinics, which are already in place right across this country in certain jurisdictions, but it's the involvement of the major multinational corporations in our healthcare system. A lot changed back when the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement was signed, NAFTA. It really eased some of the hurdles that these big multinationals faced in trying to get involved in delivery of healthcare services like food and laundry and logistics and scheduling and the like. And it has a massive presence in this province as well. Mike called yesterday morning to talk about the presence of the Compass Group. They are a massive corporation, and they have a massive representation here in our healthcare system. Mike also went on to make the link between uh, Teladoc, the new virtual care offering that's coming. It's going to be launched out of New West Valley to incorporate some 15,000 people. We'll get into that a little bit further now in a second, but a lot has changed. Back under the leadership of finance minister between 1993 and 2002, Paul Martin, there was a lot of weakening of the criteria for healthcare transfer dollars. So when we look at healthcare, and people talk about the worrisome possibility of further expansion of private offerings, but we don't really consider enough just some of these major corps involved like Compass. Hundreds of millions of dollars leaving the province each and every year, and we should get back to looking at the criteria regarding the Canada Health Act. It's been absolutely eroded over the past 20, 30 years, so Mike's not wrong that we should be talking about how big corporations are intimately and deeply involved in this country, and it really did change back when NAFTA was initially signed, so that's something I think that we should probably dig in a little further. There was also some... Uh, concerns uh, when uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper was in place. So in 2006, they looked at the issue regarding compliance with the Canada Health Act and really rejected the renewal of a health accord. And since then, we've seen what's happened here. So once again, this is not just about the Conservatives or the Liberals, because in consecutive governments, there has been a lack of attention given to the Canada Health Act and the issue regarding universal health care and the imposition of major corporations, multinationals in our system. So I think that's something that we can absolutely take on. It's deep and it's complex and it's got multiple, multiple layers, but it's important. 
In that vein, there are some grievances been filed by the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador, and Yvette Coffey, the president, is speaking out about it, talking about the fact that apparently the travel agency nurses are being offered shifts and overtime shifts before those who are on the casual and permanent full-time list of registered nurses. It's hard to understand why. I mean, again, we've heard the stories, right? So I'm a registered nurse working in the public system, working shoulder-to-shoulder with someone who's a travel agency nurse, making a lot more than me, with a lot of flexibility in their schedule and of course that is not helping uh, when we talk about the temperature and the tone and the relationship on the floor so we can take it on but here's some of the numbers so the RN uh, the registered nurses union of the province represents some 5,800 registered nurses and nurse practitioners here's some of the issues regarding cost the travel nurses who are in place to try to fill some of the gaps and we know that it's been referred to as a necessary evil no one begrudges anyone the choice they've made to move from working for the Newfoundland Labrador Health Services to working for a private agency to make more money, of course, if that's dangled in front of me, I'm taking it. I'm taking it today. So it costs the healthcare system about $18.4 million over 12 months, compared with $4.1 million employing nurses who are already in the system. How can that not be the priority? You know, I know we're not going to be able to flip a switch and say there's no more travel agency nurses, but we have indeed seen since April some 310 nurses hired into the public system. But why is the health authority making the decision willfully to allow to spend more money on travel agency nurses versus nurses in the public system? Like, it absolutely makes zero sense. So that's ongoing. And Ms. Coffey, if you're listening and you want to further elaborate on it, you're welcome to do on the program this morning. So the union has filed a group policy grievance. There's also been some six individual, individual grievances that have been filed. But can someone explain to me how that makes any sense? Keep going with uh, people who are represented by the Registered Nurses Union, nurse practitioners. They're concerned about the lack of attention given to their skill set and what they're accredited to do. And this is all about the expansion of virtual care. So we can dig into, you know, what nurse practitioners should be doing and as opposed to expanding uh, virtual care offerings here in the province. So they are probably absolutely underappreciated with the autonomy that they have, lack of uh, the no need to be supervised by, for instance, a doctor. So if uh, Travis Shepard, who's a nurse practitioner who operates out in Cornerbrook and is the president of the Nurse Practitioner Association, you know, talking about $11 million for virtual care, which is probably necessary. I would imagine for many people, if you don't have the opportunity to be at a collaborative care clinic or have a family doctor, virtual care might indeed be exactly what the doctor ordered. But for the nurse practitioners, if they're not doing what they're trained to do, this goes all the way back to the whole scope of practice being adhered to. You know, we've got a lot of territorial issues inside the world of healthcare professionals. If you're trained to do X, let's let them do it. You know, again, some of the confusion and the wait times and the modeled up system is on purpose. And when we talk about the issue regarding revamping healthcare in the country, to not allow people to do what they're trained to do and to see some of their in-person services eroded to go to things like virtual care. But again, if you're in a rural, remote part of the province with the lack of proximity to a healthcare offering, a clinic or otherwise, then it might be perfect for you. Not for every ill or ailment, but the nurse practitioners, they do absolutely seem to be underappreciated and underutilized given what they're trained to do. So anyway, that's a couple of things inside the world of privatization and corporate involvement in our healthcare system. Here's an interesting one. So the members, or pardon me, the residents of Tiltcove, all four of them, have voted to resettle. 
and they will indeed be able to uh, access the provincial government monies for the resettlement purposes, upwards of $275,000 per household. If I remember correctly, it's two brothers married to two sisters. Till Cove was found uh, all the way back in 1813. Big mining town, lots of copper and zinc and gold. They operated the mines in Till Cove until, uh, pardon me, in 1864 is when they first opened, and the Postal Service first established in 1869. But the population in 1901 was 1,370. 57 people lived there by 1956. As of this year, four people remain in Till Cove on a full-time basis. So they're going to resettle, and we can tackle that particular issue. But then, of course, we do indeed know that regardless of people's love of community, the generations of families that have lived in one small community or another across the province, there is going to be more resettlement votes. Remember all of the confusion about eligibility when the community of Galtus voted to resettle. So the province dropped the threshold of votes from 90% to 75%. And so there's going to be more communities that are either thinking about it or currently entertaining formal conversations regarding whether or not it's time to move on. In Galtus, the confusion came with voter eligibility, right? So when it was first broached on April the 26th, 2021, if you were a full-time resident, that was your primary residency, you had the opportunity to vote. But between April 26th of 2021 and when the formal vote actually happened, a number of people left the community for good. They moved on their own accord. And so consequently, their vote is probably in the bag. You know, you're going to vote to resettle if you've already moved. I mean, the amount of money being put forward by the provincial government is very, very real. So we've got to figure out these eligibility issues because resettlement votes, as painful as they might be, as divisive as they might be in certain communities, we've got to get that process right because currently the way it's structured really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's a big one we can take on. All right. So the Public Accounts Committee is going to have public hearings tomorrow regarding the Auditor General's report on NALCOR. So we know that the concern was brought forward by Denise Hanrahan considering things like financial practices, compensation for executives, much of which has been addressed by Jennifer Williams, who's at the helm of uh, Hydro these days, but the public hearing is in place. She will be there to answer questions from the committee on the report and what they've done to respond to the Auditor General's concerns. So the public galleries will be open and the proceedings will actually be streamed online as well. And in the world of power, if you'd like to take on Newfoundland Power's rate height application, which is pretty standard practice, happens uh, every three years. The application this time, though, for 1.5% increased July 1st, followed the next year by 5.5%. Dennis Brown, of course, the province's consumer advocate, says that this is more about return on investment versus the need for upgrade of infrastructure, what have you. So that's the world of power, if you are so inclined. All right, also in the world of energy, Terra Nova now, the resumption of production has happened at the Terra Nova oil field. You know, I spoke with Rob Strong here in the program yesterday regarding what's going on out there. It extended the lifetime of the field by some 10 years, maybe 70 or 80 million barrels of oil remaining in that field. Then it's the concept of, you know, corporate welfare. There's always going to be every company in every industry, if they have the opportunity to access government funding and or tax breaks or subsidies, they're going to do it. It's the nature of the beast. They're in business to make a profit. So in this case, you know, Rob said that, you know, people know that we have skin in the game here. 
But I wonder, does everybody actually do know that we have skin in the game here? And the so-called corporate welfare or the generosity of the government is very clear on this front. So in the effort to protect the numbers of jobs out there, and you know, Energy NL says that the extension will bring in $139 million in wages, $120 million in corporate income tax, and about a half a billion dollars in other taxes and fees floating to the provincial government. And yes, there's a lot of jobs that will be on the platform and in the supply world, logistics and food and environmental monitoring and what have you, but we're in. $205 million of actual cash. Remember when that fund was established? It was only for corporations, not for people actually working in, in, in the industry. It was for the business themselves. So $205 million in cash. And then it was the royalty deferral of some additional $300 million, which means over the course of the next 10 years, the provincial government will only see some $35 million in royalties flow to them. So we are absolutely in. And the Terranova, look, if you're working or directly or indirectly working because of the Terranova oil field life extension, fair ball. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? Okay, there's an awful lot I wanted to get to, but just a quick one, and I almost hate to bring this one up, but it's one of those important, sad stories that we have to acknowledge and we have to have these discussions in our families. So we talk about uh, school safety and the online safety. And these are hard. I mean, I don't even know how you bring it up with your children. As much as we struggle with, with our boys when they were small, to talk about some of these red flags and some of the dangers and the evils that are lurking around every digital corner. The RCMP in Prince George, British Columbia, are talking about the fact that there has been a suicide, a 12-year-old boy, as a result of sexual extortion. So what they call sextortion online. You know, it's becoming more and more prevalent. Lots of reports that are coming forward. The most targeted age group are between the ages of 13 and 19. Here's some of the numbers regarding those who actually reported. And of course, when we talk about reporting, so many people who are victims of this type of sexual extortion online for sexual favors or pictures of intimate or nude uh, photography or what have you. But people are coming forward, and if you think that your child, who we all want to uh, let them feel like they're independent, we want to let them know that we trust them, but it can happen really innocently and all of a sudden snowball from there, so please, that story just is an absolute heartbreaker, and if you need, you think you need to have that conversation, there are lots of online tools to help talk about how to initiate said discussion, so anyway, here's some of the numbers. Uh, so far, the detachment just there in Prince George, uh, uh, the in Prince George, uh, British Columbia. So, so far this year, the detachment has received 62 reports of online sextortion. That's up from 56 in 2022. That's just one RCMP detachment in one community in British Columbia. Unbelievable. So there's so much we can talk about. And yes, please, if you've got some good news to share, let's do that as well. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's kick off the show talking with, oh, this, these people are terrific. You know, there's a lot of online support, not-for-profits, and or just community members who recognize the need and the shortcomings and the gaps and trying to help. One such group is Neighbors in Need. Courtney Barber is one of the administrators of that Facebook group. She joins us to kick off the program. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one, the top of the board. Say good morning to Courtney Barber with Neighbors in Need. That's a Facebook group. Good morning, Courtney. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks. How about you? 
I'm Grace. So I don't know if I'm putting a lot of work on your shoulders, but we do oftentimes send people your way. And I know that the number of people who are posting on your Facebook group and the number of people posting in need is growing just like we see right across the board. Paint us a picture of what you're seeing. Uh, well, I mean, just this month, uh, we had the highest number of food requests on our page since we started in 2020. So the raw, the need is just grown so substantially, and we're seeing it all across. Even with our Christmas project, we have, you know, over 700 applicants right now waiting for uh, for Christmas help. So it's just crazy the amount of need, and it's it's up everywhere. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that it's not just one age group. It's not just the working poor. We're seeing an awful lot of seniors turn to you folks and telling you some absolutely heartbreaking tales. It really is. So this year, what we uh, last year we did it too, but this year we did it on a bigger scale. Uh, so we had a nomination of seniors because seniors don't have Facebook. They don't have neighbors in need on their, on you know their in their laps to be able to ask for help. So we called uh, over 200 seniors and the stories across the board are just heartbreaking. I would say four out of every five seniors that we called are living in complete despair. They were breaking down, crying on the phone with us. Um, one gentleman, he had been given a loaf of bread a week before and he was down to his last slice and that's all he had had for the whole week. Um, so most of these seniors are asking for food for Christmas, um, asking for things like dish soap and laundry soap, toilet paper in their stocking because they just can't afford to buy those things anymore. Uh, it's it's totally heartbreaking. We have a request for turkey uh, or a ham because they could cook it and it would last them so much longer and they wouldn't be hungry. Uh, it's... It's just devastating, Patty. How do you go about uh, satisfying some of the requests? Like, how does it work? So we take the request and we take the um, what we call an application. So that's just gathering everybody's information. And then we turn that into an anonymous um, posting and we post it up on our page, which we have over 300 put up there so far. And so we just put it up there with their general, you know, demographics, their age, their gender, where they're located, and then the things that they're asking for so that people in the community can come together to help to either, you know, take on that person to help provide them some cheer for Christmas or, um, you know, several people come together to help complete um, someone's request. So we have an idea of the number of people reaching out for help. Give us an idea of the number of people that are working with you and your group that are actually providing the help. Oh, there's hundreds of people. Um, you know, uh, we we're really fortunate this year that we had a lot of people from past years and new people step up to um, help other people. A lot of families who are well off are putting off, you know, buying gifts for themselves and their own family members to be able to help the less um, unfortunate. So uh, we have um, probably over 200 private sponsors so far this year and probably another 100 to 200 people who are helping just on a smaller level, you know, coming together with other people or just providing an item here or there. Uh, we have hundreds of people who are helping um, on the back end. Do you have something set up that would be like a formal distribution model or how does it work once people are wanting to provide the help? Because when we're talking about an online Facebook group, someone that you're trying to help might be on the opposite side of the province, for instance. 
Yeah, so I mean, our our group is province wide. There's people traveling the province every single day. So, you know, if you want to help somebody in Corner Brook and you want to put together a package for them, we have no problem getting it across the island. Um, that's that's the simple part of it. So, uh, you know, we ask, uh, especially our, well, we ask everybody, but our seniors, um, to provide something that's about a hundred dollars or less that they're in need of. And then, uh, to provide some ideas for a stocking. So, I mean, that's what kind of it entails to, uh, to cover a person. They'll have a request this year. It's mostly, um, winter jacket, winter boots, gloves, and mitts, just things people cannot afford to get for themselves but they're in need of uh, most of our requests are necessities and and not uh, things that people want for sure so um, yeah you can connect with a senior you can call them you can have a chat find out if they need anything different um, get really specific and um, and then deliver it directly to them or like I said if they're far away from you we always have volunteers who are traveling across that are more than willing to bring it for us do you have any idea what a dollar amount of donations or support goes through your group in the run of the year? Oh my goodness, no. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, like, you know, it depends week to week um, or what's going on. Right now we have a little boy who just had to uh, be rushed to Toronto for um, for uh, cancer treatment. Uh, he just got diagnosed with cancer last week. And so, you know, we have lots of donations coming in for specific things. Um, but, I mean, Christmas time, it's definitely um, really big. We don't get a lot of cash donations. We prefer items or for people to sponsor directly because uh, that takes the, the, you know, the footwork off of us to go shopping and things like that. So, I mean, it is substantial. You're doing great work, Courtney. I, every now and then I have a look at the page, and people are constantly reminding me when someone calls this program, for instance, and says they're in need of what, ha- what have you. I can't tell you how many times and how quickly people send me an email. Send them on to Neighbors in Need, which we do a lot. So I appreciate all the work that you and your team do. How many people do you think are operating like as administrators, or are you running it by yourself? Oh, gosh, no. I have a big team of amazing people. Uh, we have 12 um, main admin with another probably 50 or 60 volunteers in the background that help. Um, and it's just incredible. And, I mean, our group has grown to almost 30,000 members. Um, but, you know, that's only the tip of the iceberg of the people who are in need. Um, I said this the other day is, you know, we put up this post asking for nominations of seniors and in a couple of hours we had 200 nominations. Um, and that's only the people who saw that post who are in our group. Um, so, you know, if we had, you know, your team and uh, the, the TV and everywhere asking people to, um, you know, shout out the people that are living in these communities by themselves Themselves, the seniors who are who are struggling on their own. I can just imagine what those numbers would look like. Courtney, I really appreciate your time this morning. Keep up the good work. You as well. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Courtney Barber, one of the administrators behind Neighbors in Need. Imagine, you know, when we talk about the horsepower brought to bear by volunteers and the charitable organizations and the not-for-profits, if you back that stuff out, government will never be able to keep up. So here we are on Giving Tuesday. We purposefully started with that call this morning because there is going to be a big effort across the country today to see what kind of look. I mean, and I know people are strapped for cash, right? Times are tight. And so people are 
we're maybe not able to give. I mean, even if you look at things like retail sales, and t- this is the season, right? Leading into Christmas, people are, if possible, wanting to spend, trying to cheer up some of their loved ones and their friends, provide a couple of gifts, and those numbers are down. You can only imagine what it's going to mean in the world of charitable giving. So if you can, today might be a day where you have a look at your own family budget and see whether or not you have the capacity to possibly donate to one of your favorite charities or not-for-profits. And, of course, that's up to you. Let's take a break. When we come back, Daryl's in the queue to talk about the airline subsidy for travel to Europe. I assume that's WestJet's thrice-weekly trip to London's Gatwick. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with the VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Daryl. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing well, thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm number one. Uh, I've got a complaint this morning that I heard uh, over the weekend. We were doing a fundraiser up in the Labrador Mall. We had a book fair uh, raising funds for Air Daffodil, and we were talking about the price of uh, airline tickets from Labrador to uh, to the island. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody mentioned, yeah, they said uh, the provincial government is subsidizing this uh, WestJet, I think it is, uh, providing uh, airlines to uh, Europe. Yes, uh, the short answer is yes. Yeah, I don't know what the, the figure is, but it's in the millions. And the provincial government is subsidizing it. Now, I, I, when I heard the story, I was pleased, you know, that people are getting the opportunity to go to Europe and all that Stuff, but I, I must have missed something that the government is subsidizing uh, this uh, airfare to uh, to Europe if they don't meet their quota. Is well, no money has been spent yet, and the subsidy will all be a floating target based on the success of the route itself. So here are some of the numbers to consider. We don't have a, a specific number for this uh, subsidy for WestJet, but the provincial government put forward some $3.75 million that was going to be distributed amongst all of the airport authorities in the province. So not just St. John's International. So not all that money is going to flow to WestJet. So we won't know exactly what's spent until I would imagine we'll see a post-mortem after the first year of this uh, particular offering. And when we talk about inter-provincial travel, there's subsidies for provincial travel as well. It's hard to get a number. I've been looking around to see exactly what it is, but the relationship with provincial, and, you know, I see the cost, the extraordinary amount of money it uh, takes to travel between Labrador and the island. But there are actually subsidies in place for provincial travel as well. Where? From the government. You know... I understand what you're saying, that there's supposed to be a a subsidy, but it's not on my plane ticket. If I have to go to the island tomorrow morning and I have to get a last-minute flight, it's going to cost me $1,500, $1,600. Is there a subsidy for that? Well, there's a subsidy for the operations. It won't be reflected on your ticket, nor will it be reflected on WestJet's ticket. It's all directly flowing monies to the company itself for operations. So, you know, and you— For the millionaires. Pardon me? For the millionaires. Well, I don't know. For the millionaires? Well, I mean, you mentioned the fact that people will be able to travel from here to Europe. I think the biggest part of this story is the ease with which people from Europe will be able to travel here. So, yes, there's going to be folks here who people will refer to as the one percenters or the elites, and they're going to have an opportunity to fly with greater ease to Europe for their own vacation needs and or their business needs. But I think the big rationale here is to make it easier for people in that part of Europe to travel to this province. Well, that's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't mind with tourism, but 
you know, I, I can't understand the provincial government. I mean, here we are subsidizing uh, an airline. We're subsidizing, or we have this new program uh, just uh, on another venue, is the health health care system. Uh, this new uh company that they just brought in that they're going to do virtual uh, health care uh, remedies. I, I, I don't understand where this government is coming from. Where are they finding the money? Where, you know, why are they subsidizing these millionaires? Uh, the guy that was on yesterday made a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know his name, but uh, he was talking about the, uh, the large uh, contract that's uh, about health care. Um, where is this provincial government thinking? You know, I mean, what about Tent City? What about Labrador? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not talking just Labrador West. I'm talking about all of Labrador. I'm talking about Tent City. You know, I mean, we're is the provincial government putting any effort into uh, subsidizing our local people. Well, the answer again is yes. The issue regarding housing is there is no, seemingly, no short-term plan here. We can talk about billions of dollars from the federal government and millions of dollars from the provincial government, but it takes time to build a house. So the the problem that I think most people have identified here regarding folks who are homeless living in tents behind the colonial building is what do we do today? We can talk yeah. about building a house, but what, that doesn't do anything for someone who's living in a tent throughout the course of this winter. But they have they have Newfoundland Labrador housing that that's barred up. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, that can't they put a few bucks into uh, a few, I suppose, a few million dollars into that rather than uh, uh, giving it away to the millionaires that are of this uh, country? Uh, sure. I mean, no one's going to argue against that, Daryl. I mean, we talk about corporate uh, issues this morning right off the top of the program. I mean, look no further than the oil business. We're in for a half a billion dollars regarding Terranova, just in an effort to protect those jobs. And don't, no one can tell me that Suncor needs the money. No. So there's I, lots of examples yeah. of federal monies, provincial monies, uh, not necessarily municipal monies, but certainly the two big levels of government. Money flowing out to industry and private business is endless. And they, they, and they know how to squeeze. Oh yeah, and that, that that's our whole problem is that you know the the government had to do that in order to keep them afloat. Let's say. Well, it's all done. Of course, the argument is always about protecting the jobs, right? So yeah. that's how they make the arguments. Just look at no further in Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper and the Kroger's operations outside of Cornerbrook. That's all about protecting the jobs. And we're in for millions and millions and millions of dollars in that industry. Yeah, and I agree, and and I mean. Where where does it end? That's that's my concern. Is, is where does it end? You know, I mean, if if they can keep it home to uh, to say Bowater, uh, not Bowaters, but Kruger, you know, I mean that that's one thing. But I don't understand this WestJet going to Europe. I just uh, it just balled my blood when I when I heard that the uh, the government is subsidizing that in the millions of dollars. I just can't. And, and I, I know that we don't have any figures yet, but they are willing, let's say they're willing to put a couple of million dollars into into that. And, and I've got to pay. I cannot travel to, I'm a senior, and I've only got a pension, and I can't afford to go and visit people on the island. i got a son that lives in St. John in, in Torbay, and I can't go and visit him because of the exorbitant cost of the airfare. It's just sickening.
But anyhow, thank you, Patty, for your time and continue the good work. Uh, it's an opportunity to allow people to vent if you want to, uh, whatever their uh, choice is. And uh, you're doing a good job. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for the call, Daryl. No problem. Thank you. Take good care. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. Here we go. Let's keep her rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Doc, you're on the air. Hello, Dennis. I think as a veteran I, caller. Hey, Dennis, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? That's good. It's pretty good by getting near Christmas, so things are starting to roll out. Yep. Uh, I wanted to talk to you, Patty, this morning uh, on two issues. Uh, one is the seal fishery, and... Uh, I want to compliment uh, Jim Winter. I know Jim from school days many, many years ago, and he pretty well articulated the issue with the going on with the seal industry and the impact that the ban, the European ban, is having on Newfoundland Labrador sealing industry and Newfoundland Labrador sealers in particular. Yep. And in that context, I want to say how... Uh, disappointed I am in the Prime Minister of Canada uh, last week when the European Union leaders were here and uh, he failed, absolutely failed, to take any kind of a firm substantive stand for Newfoundland or Newfoundland and Labrador or Newfoundland sealers. He could have. How so? Like, I mean, he you can't did. force the European Union to accept or to uh, eliminate their ban on seal products. So what do you suggest could or be done well, on the political front? Well, let me put it this way, Patty. He, um, he paid lip service to it, and the Union, European Union, Ursula van Leyden, paid lip service. And, of course, she said that they, they do buy from the, the Inuit. Uh, Not in this province, I Pardon me? Not the Inuit in this province. No, not the Inuit in this province, and, but she stated they do buy from Inuit, and, and you're right, not in this province. And she went on to say how nice we are and how friendly we are. And, uh, you know, I find it difficult to accept how nice and friendly we are, and at the same time, you're basing your European ban on the fact that we're bloody savages. And, and, I mean, that's the reputation we have as a result of the uh, debacle that took place with Greenpeace many, many years ago and painting Newfoundland and Labradorians in that position. So, uh, you know, I don't know how she justifies saying we're, we're really nice people. It's kind of like tokenism, in my opinion. But anyhow, uh, your question, what could he have done? Yeah. Well, I think... It was an ideal opportunity for our Prime Minister to say to the European Union, look, we have resources that you need and you need badly. We have hydrogen that you're hoping to get quite a lot of over the next 10 years. I'll tell you what, you have something that we need. And I'll put hydrogen on the table when you put the European ban on our sealing industry on the table, and let's negotiate. Let's, I mean, let's play hard. Let's play hardball. I mean, Ottawa's done this for years, trading off Newfoundland and Labrador resources, and it's about time. I mean, we have something now that the Europeans badly need. Uh, they have something 
that offends our dignity. They have as, as much our dignity and our reputation as well as our economy. And, and you know, we have a seal fishery that goes back many years and has a long and honourable and tragic history. And um, we don't need to be labelled bloodthirsty. And at the same time, there are economic benefit, benefits to be derived from the sealing industry. And it was a real opportunity to sit down and start to negotiate, don't you think? Well, I, I, you know, if we're talking about hardball and trade-offs, so let's just use hydrogen. If you're, and of course, you're talking to a European commission when, of course, it's representing so many different countries that it's hard to, you know, herd the cats, so to speak, is let's just say, okay, let's play hardball on seals. And they say, well, hydrogen, we'll get that anywhere. No problem. You don't, want, you don't want to play ball with us on hydrogen? There's lots of places and lots of developments that are already ongoing, so we'll just uh, uh, take our ball and go home. No. According to John Risley, they're dying to get our hydrogen. I mean, we are the gods of hydrogen. You listen to Fury and Risley and, and Andrew Parsons, and we are it when it comes to hydrogen. The world needs us. The Europeans need us. They're flying here. Not like we, well, I guess they do fly like we do. Uh, go to Toronto first and come here. Uh, so I, I don't think it's that easy for the, if it's that easy for them to get hydrogen over there, they wouldn't be here. Guaranteed. I really don't know, Dennis, and I think there's still major league questions to be asked about the whole uh, business structure of green hydrogen. I mean, so just I. well, I mean, there just simply is, and I, I, yeah. I mean, I don't have any skin in the game one way or the other. But even when we talk about on the other side, and the EU has created what they're calling a hydrogen bank, 1.2 billion dollars to subsidize the price of production of green hydrogen closer to what is general energy costs in the European Union. So if they have already said the quiet part out loud we have to subsidize it so that means to me that there's going to be a breaking point for price point so that's yes and you could be right but i mean the fact remains we did have a negotiating point and Uh, maybe anyway okay that's that point and we didn't and we didn't act under the prime minister as in the past failed to stand up for us and that's the way that's the way I see it. He had the opportunity. He could have done it. He didn't do it. He he piled, you know, he he paid lip service to it. He's gone back to Ottawa now, where he belongs, and uh, uh, that's pretty well going to be the end of it for a while yet. I think. Very quick, Dennis. Before I have to get hey. going here, you talk about hydrogen. I know you're working with the Protect uh, NL group, and you're talking about we're moving too quick here. Help me square this circle. If we're moving too quick on hydrogen and wind power, how are you also on the other side of the coin talking about we move too, uh, too slow on oil? We understand oil. We understand the jeopardy that the oil industry creates. So we're too quick on hydrogen, but we're too slow on oil. How does that work? Well, I, I think it's all in the regulatory process. And both industries should be subject to environmental processes and to regulatory processes on, a, on an equal basis. And, and they weren't. One was had an assessment done by Assessment Canada, and uh, the other uh, Assessment Canada said, no, we're not, we're not doing environmental impact. And John Risley went ahead and did his own his own uh, environmental report, and now we're trying to assess that. I think both industries, if they are proven to be environmentally sound and uh, uh, economic,
economically viable, then we should pursue them. We should we should pursue any industries that are benefit to Newfoundland and Labrador. But of course, the oil industry is not environmentally sound. Well, it's not, but it, in terms of our need for oil and our continued need for oil, the oil industry, no, as, as you said often, no industry is totally green. No, no such thing. Right? Now, before I leave, Teddy... Yeah, quickly, because i got to go. I want to mention the Compass Group. Okay. And Mike Kingdom. Now, I've listened to Mike a few times talking to you uh, on this whole issue of Compass, and I've uh, I've had a few chats myself with Mike, and uh, talked to him, and he's explained me explained to me a lot of what's been uh, going on, and uh, you know, we're, uh, Mike is very keen on the fact that uh, the financial arrangements that the Compass Group has with our with our province when it comes to healthcare, the stranglehold that they have on the healthcare system. The millions and millions and millions of dollars that are being misspent uh, that uh, Mike has uh, says he has proof of, and uh, also the fact that in the past investigations have been done and they've been shelved, and you know all of all of this bears reckoning at some level. All of this bears and brings us to the point where government has to say something. Silence means consent. And, like, I listened to Mike talking to you the other day, I listened to what he had to say, and I've yet to hear a response from Minister Osborne. I have yet to hear a response from the Premier. I have yet to hear a response from Dave Diamond or anybody else. And, you know... We're always hiding reports. I mean, the Green Report is an example of that. You know, it, the Green Report the was released publicly you, in full. Pardon me? The Green Report was released publicly in full. Yeah, but in, it was difficult to get. No, and it was released in full the day they told us it was going to be released in full. The report maybe you're talking about is Rothschild. We haven't seen a single oh, word yes, uh, of that yeah. report, uh, yeah. which I'd like to have a look at. That costs yeah, us millions right. of dollars to have produced. McKinsey, of course, cost millions, or pardon me, I think it was one million American, and that was delayed for a long time to talk about economic diversification. So there's some things we have not seen. Rothschild being number one, but the Green Report, every single word was publicly released. Yeah, no, you're right. That's the one I meant, the, Roth- the Rothschild report. Yeah, but okay. Ba- back to the... To the Final thoughts, because I do have to go, Dennis. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to say, if these investigations were done, then they should be made public. Somebody in government, premier, minister, somebody needs to speak out publicly on this issue and tell us what's going on. I mean, if Mike is right, we're headed down a deep, dark road that's going to come to an end. I appreciate the time, Dennis. I'm late for the break. Stay in touch. Okay. okay. Thanks, Freddie. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, All right let's Bye. take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five and talk about Christmas with Ian and Nancy. That's Ian Foster joining us on five. Good morning, Ian. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Very well. Thanks. How about yourself? Good, good. So time to take the Christmas tour on the road. Once again, kicking off in a couple of days. What's happening? 
Yeah, well, it's worth noting that we are taking on the road once again, but after a several-year hiatus. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine any of the reasons why. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we started this tour 2018, did 2019, and, uh, you know, it was looking to become an annual thing. And, of course, 2020, we all know what happened. So uh, we, of course, did virtual shows along the way, as we all did, but uh, it feels good to finally be back in rooms with people this year. You know, how tough was it on you and Nancy and some of your friends in the music business? Because it was one thing to do the virtual offerings and the Zooms and the performances from our basements and kitchens and whatnot, but there's nothing quite like the feedback of a live audience. Without a doubt. I mean, like, obviously there's the financial stuff and everything that every artist dealt with and that every one dealt with during the pandemic. But I think a lot of it, too, was really that feeling of, like, not what you sign up for, you know? Because obviously if you're a performer and you play live, you want that experience. You want to be in the rooms with people. So that was not an option for uh, for far too long. So it does make it all the sweeter when you get to go back and do it, though. My first shows back last fall uh, on the West Coast were, were pretty special because not only for me but for a lot of other people, it was their first experience of live music in several years and that's a pretty pretty cool thing to behold you know it's it's a big deal is this going back to the record that you released back on i think it's 17 or 18 or you got some new material out there for the christmas tour uh, it's definitely both. I mean, obviously, we're we're playing stuff from Week in December, which was that that album, and uh, you know, still very proud of that album, of course. And that's the beautiful thing about Christmas albums. Every year, some new people get to hear it for the first time, and it kind of has a life that's separate from a normal record, you know. Uh, but uh, but you also the trade offs. You only get to play it for uh, three three weeks a year. <laughs> yeah, right. It. So so yeah. So we'll be playing songs from that, but we have a few new songs as well. I, I tell you what, Ian, the title track from a Week in December is really a beautiful song. Thank you, Patty. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, I can't really retell the story in full myself because I didn't write the song, but it's basically about the yearn to need to come home, and it's that one week a year where you book your ticket to get back to your family and friends, and you know it really does have a lot of Newfoundland in it, but I would imagine that's a sentiment shared by people regardless of where they're displaced from. It's a lovely song. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, uh, the first chance I'd had to really... Um, tour it uh, off island I think um, was in was in Calgary actually uh, this past fall and it was late enough in the fall it sort of you know was okay to play it at a non-Christmas show you know it was November sometime like around this time of year and uh, yeah there was tons of people there who related to it too because I guess it was it's that theme like you said of, of coming home is, is ultimately universal. Uh, just a very quick personal story which has nothing to do with it although it's in the same vein my very first Christmas away from home I I think it was in 1991 and I was living and working in Jasper and working at the Jasper Park Lodge and I told this story to uh, Juanita Mercer after the telegram and I got hammered for it so my job was to shut down all of the rooms that we had the movies playing so Some Like It Hot and uh, Sound of Music and what have you so it's around midnight I go in to turn off the Sound of Music but it's coming up to one of my absolutely favorite scenes at the music festival and uh, he's singing oh my god what's the, uh, the name of the song uh, da, 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 da. oh anyway so I'm watching it by myself and next thing I know between missing home and the song I start to cry and my buddies came up behind me I was sobbing my shoulders were bobbing up and down my buddies caught me bawling my eyes out in the in the, in the ballroom oh my god <laughs> terrible that's amazing though that's yeah. amazing though yeah I mean that's it man the pull to home in that time of year I mean you know we all we all feel it's a universal thing so okay tell us about the tour where are you going how do I get a ticket 
Yeah, absolutely. So we start on Thursday in Bay Roberts, and we move on. So we were playing uh, shows in uh, in Botwood, in uh, the town of Trinity, in Dildo, and then back in St. John. So uh, that's November 30th to December 8th. December 8th is the final show here in St. John's at Wesley uh, United Church. We've got some special guests for that one. We've got Susan Evoy in the Waterford uh, Valley Choir. We just did a very early morning rehearsal with them this morning, actually. So very excited for that. And uh, and also David Chafe, who is uh, absolutely wonderful, produced a couple of David Chafe's records, uh, recorded them at Wesley. So it's going to be a really cool kind of homecoming experience there, I think, to have him on board as well. Uh, Children Are 12 are free for all the shows. Every show is also a fundraiser for the church that it's in. And all the tickets, you can find it all on ianfoster.ca slash shows. We're selling them online, but also at church offices. So get the details there. Terrific stuff. And, of course, the song was Christopher Plummer was singing Edelweiss. Bless my homeland forever. I'm Edelweiss, yeah. Man, I'm just awful. Uh, Ian, break every leg in the joint, man. Anything else you want to tell us before we say goodbye? That's it, Patty. Appreciate you having, having me on. Happy to have you on. Say hello to Nancy for us. Will do. Okay, take care, pal. All right, there you go. Uh, Christmas with Ian and Nancy coming up. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Ryan Cleary with CNL. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Do you any listeners? Thanks, as always, sir, for taking the call. Anytime. Uh, no surprise, Patty, but I'm, I'm calling in this morning with a couple of fishery issues. First, the Prime Minister met last week here in St. John's, as you and your listeners know, with the leaders of the European Union. Trade was a big item on the agenda, as was energy, fish, not so much. Uh, the European Union is one of 13 members of the Northwest Atlantic uh, Fisheries Organization, or NAFO. Uh, and as, as you and many of your listeners know, NAFO oversees fishing of migratory stocks like cod on the Grand Banks outside 200 miles on the nose and tail uh, of the Grand Banks and, and the Flemish Cap. Now, countries that are members of the European Union, like Spain and Portugal, for example, have all been guilty over the years of overfishing. Um, decades of overfishing with their factory freezer trawlers. trawlers. NAFO is also toothless. It's unable to enforce the quota that it sets. Patty, the reason I raise NAFO is, and this is the point I want to get at, or the first point, it's because two of Canada's three seats at the NAFO table have been vacant, one for two and a half years and the other for a year and a half. The last people who held those seats were Keith Sullivan, formerly of the FFAW, and then the other member was Alistair O'Reilly of the Northern Coalition. They represent northern uh, indigenous communities. So my first point is that Canada, the prime minister, must fill those two vacant positions at the NAFO table ASAP. Now, this country, Patty, is fooling itself if, if we believe that foreign overfishing on the nose and tail of the Grand Banks is no longer an issue. Now, it was only it was two years ago this fall in October 2021, and I spoke to you about this at the time, that the captain of a, a Faroese longliner, he went public to say that foreign draggers were destroying the Grand Banks by directing for moratorium species such as cod. And the, the, that particular Faroese captain said that Canadian enforcement officers could not board or inspect uh, the foreign draggers because of COVID, because, because the, the captains of the draggers said there was COVID aboard. Now we have a situation, Pat, Patty, where DFO has brought in a new northern cod assessment model, and, and that model 
and this is what the, the line of thinking is, that that model may see the moratorium lifted next year after 32 years of moratorium. So if that moratorium is lifted, NAFO member countries like the EU, if we're not careful, may pound that stock back to oblivion. Now, the prime minister, from our perspective, must fill those NAFO seats. We have to get on top of this now or the past will repeat itself. Fill those NAFO seats, but also give our NAFO representatives leeway to take a stand. One thing, um, I heard Doc O'Keefe just before, just before the 10 o'clock news, he said that the prime ministers of this country have failed to, to stand up for Newfoundland and Labrador's fish, uh, for, have failed to stand up for Newfoundland and Labrador, period. But I'd say, I add on to that, to what Doc O'Keefe said, they failed to stand up for our wild fisheries with northern cod coming back on stream or that's the line of thinking anyway we have to get our act in gear right now nafo is still uh, toothless absolutely ineffective in terms of controlling overfishing we have to get on top of that now so this is one of the issues with the european union the prime minister should have brought up last week but from my understanding i don't think nafo was mentioned I don't know. I brought it up on this program, and I don't know if it was broached even for one split second at this so-called Canada-EU summit, but it's a good question. And imagine, NAFO's been relatively toothless, housed in Spain, managing our fishery, or, you know, part of the management structure and enforcement. So it's, it's been a pretty laxed organization, I would suggest. So we've got uh, Northern Cod is under moratorium, although they've had a small uh, stewardship fishery, 13,000 tons last few years. So we got a moratorium on northern cod. The cod stock in the Gulf in, in four hours is also under moratorium. The only fishery open now is off the south coast in 3PS. It, it's not much of a quota, 1,300 tons just over, uh, but it's still open. But I'm told that cod right now in 3PS um, is also at its best in terms of quality and in terms of, of yield. But enterprise owners in 3PS were, were told this past weekend that Quincy Royal Greenland has stopped buying cod, uh, Patty. So in a lot of cases, there's no other company for enterprise owners to sell it to. From our perspective, Quincy should not be permitted to cherry pick the species that the company is willing to buy from inshore boats when too often there's no other buyer. The fisher, what it comes down to, Patty, is fishermen can't operate from the land. And in too many cases, with cod, with whelk, with sea cucumbers, companies buy when it's good for them, not for the fishermen. That does not work. The province must either issue more processing license. We know they're considering a bunch of applications right now. Or they must insist that existing companies like Royal Greenland buy all product that's landed. It's one or the other, Patty. Government can't have it both ways unless they're okay with the inshore fleet being held hostage because that's the situation we're in. Yeah, it's it's certainly not ideal. So when we talk about the new model, I just want to get back to that for a second. DFO changing their historical data point, you know, from I think it was 70-something to 56 or something or other, and now saying that maybe the stock is not in the critical zone. The same doesn't apply to the uh, southern stock in 3PS, though, does it? No. Um, no. I, from my understanding, it did not change the assessment model for either 3PS or, or, or the cost stock in the Gulf. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I was on the right track. Yeah. So the bottom line of what it comes down to is the fishery, the wild fisheries of this country need to be put on the prime minister's agenda front and center. And what we saw clearly from that meeting with the EU last week is that that is not the case. And it's going to have to be because ground fish species like cod are coming back. There's a reason why offshore companies are building brand new factory freezer trawlers. 
because they see opportunities with ground fish. And if we're not careful, it'll, like I say, Patty, it'll be knocked back to oblivion. You could unfortunately be absolutely spot on there, Ryan. Anything else before I take another call? No, that's about it. But uh, again, um, in terms of 3PS, in terms of Quincy, in terms of Royal Greenland, picking and chooses, choosing which species they buy, that's not good enough. If, if we've got a coal shop, uh, a closed shop in terms of only so many ish, uh, licenses being issued, um, and if, if it's going to stay that way, I don't believe it should, um, but um, the companies that are there have to buy all the product from enterprise owners right around this province. Thanks a lot, Patty. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Ryan. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. It's Ryan Cleary. CNL. Let's go to line number four. Uh, good morning, Don Connolly. You're on the air. Good day, Patty Daly. It's been a while. Mike. It has been a while. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Patty. Uh, today I thought it was appropriate as, uh, on Giving Tuesday uh, to talk to people for a few minutes uh, about the fact that they don't always have to give money. They can give time. Give time uh, for such organizations, for example, as the Lions Club. I'm a member of the St. John's Lions Club. Mm-hmm. And uh, we give a lot of time and give to the community in very many ways. Uh, for example, Patty, uh, tomorrow, um, uh, Wednesday, we're going to be going down to uh, Tent City and uh, helping out uh, some of the people down there by providing them with a, uh, a hot lunch, uh, a nice uh, thick stew and some some bread rolls and coffee and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, Saturday coming, uh, weather permitting, of course, uh, we're going to be uh, going to Boring Park and giving of our time and giving to the community in terms of uh, hot chocolate for all the people that attend the, uh, the Festival of Lights at Boring Park this Saturday. Um, we're, we're uh, as a member of the uh, giving community, I guess, the St. John's Lions Club are involved with all sorts of stuff. We're, we have currently uh, people out now, members out, um, purchasing gifts for, for uh, families that we'll be donating to with the Single Parents Association. So we're always out there giving, but one thing that we really need is people to give us some of their time. We need new members. Uh, it's getting harder and harder for us older folk to keep up with all the demand. And uh, the the mean uh, age of our group is, is getting up there, unfortunately, Betty. And we'd like to um, uh, request the younger people out there to, to give some consideration of giving some time uh, to back to the community. Uh, it's a fantastic feeling, uh, Patty, when you get involved with a, a community group and you're able to get out and help people uh, and see what a little bit can do for so many people when more people get involved. Absolutely. And I think the issue regarding the average age of the members of one community or service group or another, I think that's pretty common across the board. You know, it used to be a real go-to, not only as volunteerism, but as a networking tool. Not so sure it's as popular as it once was. I mean, when I go to some of these types of events, you can tell quite clearly that the membership have been involved for a long time and the uh, the fresh blood or the new blood to backfill is not coming as quick as required. No, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but Patty, you know, I, I think we just got to keep on reminding people that, they're, that even though we're asking of their time, 
they can get so much more out of it once they get in and realize the good that they can do uh, for the community. The smile that they see on people's faces. It's just a tremendous feeling, but people have to be able to reach out and, and get involved with organizations like the Lions Club, uh, you know, to be able to get that feeling. Um, I'd like to encourage anybody that wants to consider uh, becoming a member of the St. John's Lions Club or any Lions Club. Teddy, we've got, uh, we've got almost 100 Lions Clubs uh, across this island right now. A hundred Lions Clubs in, in all sorts of communities. Um, uh, but if you'd like to get uh, involved with the St. John's Lions Club, uh, please give me a call at uh, 699-7145, and we can put you in touch with our uh, uh, membership director and uh, to have a little bit uh, further chat. I can give you a little bit of information on some of the different things that we've been involved with throughout the years and, and will continue to be involved with. Uh, Patty, we're, we're talk about the uh, uh, Tent City down on the, uh, behind the Colonial Building. You know, the St. John's Lions Club uh, was the organization uh, that put that swimming pool together um, that, at Vanderman Park uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s. St. John's Lions Club built that uh, Vanderman Park uh, swimming pool. Um, and we, we were the people behind the... Uh, uh, fundraising efforts to be able to build Memorial Stadium back in 1948-49. Uh, so the, the Lions Club have been very much involved with the community uh, for so many years. Uh, we're the longest uh, uh, sponsoring group of a cadet group anywhere in Canada. We've, we've been sponsoring the 510 Air Cadet uh, Squadron now since our inception in 1948. So uh, we do a lot of stuff in the community, and we'd love to have some younger people come out and participate with us. Um, come out and see what we're all about. Come out to the Festival of Lights on Saturday night and get yourself a cup of chocolate, uh, hot chocolate, the compliments of the St. John's Lions Club. Hopefully the uh, people at Tent City tomorrow will appreciate our, our hot uh, stew that we're planning on delivering down there. And there's so many other things that we want to get involved with, but we need volunteers to be able to help us. Don, appreciate the information and the call for, uh, for you and your fellow Lions. Keep up the good work. Thank you so very much, Patty. You have a great day. You All too, sir. Take care, Don. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about energy issues in Labrador, talk about Stella Circle and some of the events that are going on, I believe, tonight at Stella Circle, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I'll correct myself. Now we're going to line number 10 and talk about the gathering place with the executive director. That's Paul Davis. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? Uh, oh, not too bad. Not too bad. It's, uh, it's a wet day for some people who don't have a home to go to. Um, and, of course, winter is coming as well. So it's a concern for us, and it's obviously a concern for the, for the community. And glad, glad to see there's lots of discussion publicly, especially through your show, on this important topic. So, 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 Patty, there's been talk about just down the road is, the, uh, is uh, where the tent encampment is uh, set up. But I wanted to make sure that people are aware and those who are in the area or downtown or, or throughout the city or close by uh, that we all, what we have available here. Um, we start our mornings every day at 8 a.m. with uh, serving breakfast. We, can, we have two options, either come in and sit down in our dining room or some people decide to take takeout. And then after breakfast, we have shower facilities here where people can come in and get a hot shower. 
They also have uh, laundry facilities, so those who have wet clothes, wet bed clothes, um, have been out all night, can, can bring in their, their laundry to, uh, to have it washed and dried, um, as, as we all should have. And then our day goes on from there. So we have multiple programs and services throughout today. Lunch is the biggest meal of, today, of the day, each day. We serve lunch seven days a week. Yesterday, we were just shy of 300 people served for lunch here at the Gathering Place, which, uh, which was an unusually high number, and we were all surprised. But we, we had just under 300 people come in, and we're serving lunch today from 11 to 1. So that's the main point of me calling is to, to let you know that, but also to clarify our hours of operation because I know there's been some discussion about uh, when people are permitted to come here and when they're not because we are we are 24-hour day operation but our center is only open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and then the center closes at 8 uh, in the evenings and then our shelter opens and our shelter remains open till 8 o'clock in the morning and I can tell you our shelter is under great demand today. And then there was you know uh, issues regarding having to turn people away has that been resolved and if so how'd that happen? No, we still we turn we still turn people away. I was looking at some of our our um, operational demands in the last couple of days, and since April first, which is the beginning of our our fiscal year, we've actually turned away 352 people. Uh, it went down a little bit in the last quarter um, for, compared to the first quarter, uh, but we're still we're still turning people away. I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, you think about the gathering place wasn't always even in existence. What were we doing then? Or has the problem grown exponentially over the last number of years? It's hard to wrap your mind around it. I know when there's the issues regarding people moving to the province, whether it be from around the country or around the world. And then, of course, the proximity to services. So many people that, who are absolutely experiencing homelessness or dealing with mental health issues or dealing with addiction issues have moved closer to the city for access to services in places like the gathering place. So it's hard to understand all the contributing factors as to why we're seeing what we're seeing today, but I imagine it's all of that. Well, it is, and, and talking to guests who come here on a daily basis, and by, you know, by far, most of the guests who come here on a daily basis have somewhere to go in the nighttime. It's a smaller number who don't have anywhere to go, who are truly the truly homeless. <clears throat> Gathering Place history goes back almost 30 years, when this, what used to be the, the Mercy Girls School, or Our Lady of, of Mercy School, and it became vacated, and that was back in the days when the denominational school system ended, and the Sisters of Mercy and Presentation Sisters came together and started to use kitchen facility here to invite people in for a bowl of soup couple of times a week. The growth of the gathering place has been very much organic uh, since that period of time as they've served more meals and more people came in and they started to understand the needs of the guests coming here and began to provide more services. It's essentially been a growth of you, you identify a need, you respond to that, you learn a new need, you respond to that. And that's what's happened ever since then. So in 2020, uh, well, let me back up. The school was renovated in 2014 by the sisters. They they did a, a an enormous project, took on themselves, renovated the school into the gathering place as it is today. And at that point in time, the gathering place had 400 registered guests, which is a fairly big number. By 2019, that had grown to 900. Uh, today, we have on our books 2,000 registered guests. So tremendous growth over the last number of years. During COVID in 2020, the government of Gathering Place had discussions about the increase in homelessness. 
people getting kicked out of the family members' couches and out of their basements and those kinds of things. And they asked a gathering place if we could put in a temporary shelter, which we did. And what we had to do at that point in time, it was prior to me coming here, but what had to happen at that point in time was services and programs had to be juggled, almost the shell game, the shell game to create space so that we could have a temporary shelter. And that's what I'm, that's the program or project or facility that I'm referring to when I'm talking to you today. So 352 turnaways. I can tell you as well an astonishing number. Since April 1st this year, we've had just over 5,600 night stays at our shelter. How many people can you accommodate? Our shelter is, it was set up as a 30-bed shelter. Uh, we actually have 31 beds in there right now, so we're actually been over our, our capacity of what we're engaged with government in partnership with Newfoundland Labor Housing to do. So we've, we've been over 100% capacity since April 1st. So it's a 30-bed shelter since, um, uh, since 2020. Last year, fortunately, we were able to bring in some uh, commercial-style beds, and uh, about 25 beds. So we still have a small number of basically emergency cots Red Cross style emergency cots. We have a small number of those, but we've, in the last couple of months now, replaced those with more comfortable beds and in a more comfortable circumstance. And of course, the Mercy Convent is attached to the school, the former Mercy Convent, and that right now is undergoing a, a significant renovation, and we're hoping to open that new housing facility next summer. And so that's going to be an expansion from 30 to 90, if I remember the story correctly, and that's based on a $2 million donation from Patty O'Callaghan and Paula Busher. Absolutely, and, and they, they were the ones that uh, that really kicked off the fundraising need for that. But the province, through Newfoundland Labor Housing, is a uh, significant uh, contributor as well as CMHC. So it's the federal government, provincial government, and uh, us as a, as a local organization. Uh, Patty's contribution was significant to get all that started. And actually, the shelter is going to be called O'Callaghan's Haven after, uh, after his contribution. Uh, the facility itself will be known as Mercy House. But we're also going to include, besides a 40-bed shelter over there, we're also going to have transitional housing. Housing, and we're also going to have supportive housing. And supportive housing essentially would become people's homes who are challenging to house, and they'll still have supports around them on a daily basis. Uh, last one. There was an issue regarding a Metro bus bus stop. You know, the thing people were saying that folks who are uh, clients of yours would be in the bus stop, and consequently some Metro bus riders were uncomfortable. There was some violence, and there was needles and the like. So what's the status of that issue today? Yeah, so Metrobus uh, had indicated to us they were going to remove it. There's, there was two bus shelters on Military Road, one on the same side of the, uh, the north side on right in front of our building and one on the, on the opposite side right next to the park. Um, and um, they had uh, indicated they're going to take out the bus shelter that's right outside of our building. They decided not to. We had discussions with them, and, and uh, they agreed to leave it there, and we worked out how we would, you know, we had worked with them for maintaining it and keeping it clean and so on. <clears throat> Um, and then there was a collision with a vehicle uh, last winter, which wiped out the bus shelter. But since then, we're working with Metrobus on a new plan. Um, they they're they're suggesting that you know the cookie cutter uh, shelters are are not the long term uh, fix and solution to what's going to be there. So we're working with them, and also with the company who's working on the project to create a bus shelter that's uh, a better fit for the need right there. So um, unfortunately, it's taking longer than we had hoped, but that project is underway. The bus shelter across the street was, uh, in the last uh, few months, was removed by Metrobus after uh, complaints from um, area residents and, and bus users and so on about that one, so they did take that one out. So there's no bus shelter in the immediate area of the gathering place right now, but yet people who come to the gathering place quite often come by bus, 
they come here by uh, passes that are provided through the provincial government when they expanded uh, supports for individuals who need a public transportation. Uh, those with low incomes and seniors uh, and others are provided now with bus passes, but yet there's no shelter for them to use in this area, unfortunately. I appreciate the time this morning, Paul, and I will as soon as I have the time to get down for that invitation for a tour, see what's happening. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Patty. Okay. Welcome. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. It's Paul Davis. He's the executive director at The Gathering Place. Let's take a break. Stan, you're next in the queue to talk about energy issues in Labrador. Don't go away. Santa Calls returns December 4th to your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Stan, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing grand. How about you? Uh, not bad at all. Not bad. Uh... As I said earlier, just uh, calling about the energy issues in uh, in Labrador. Uh, you'll have to forgive me. I woke up with a little bit of a, an egg cold this morning. No worries. Go right uh, ahead. On October the 26th, the Prime Minister Trudeau announced this uh, electric to oil in, or oil to electric uh, incentive program where residents can uh, remove their oil burning devices and, and be installed with electric. Uh, Heat pumps and what have you. Central heat pump, yeah. Uh, being on the coast of Labrador, and I moved back here three years ago, uh, I purchased a house that burns oil. And, you know, over the last couple of years, I've been looking at various ways that I could get off of oil and get onto an electric-based heat, whether it be electric baseboard heaters or, or a, a heat pump, which seems to be the uh, the big thing here now these days. So since this announcement, I... Uh, sat down one day and I said I'm going to you know file the application and in filing the application I see some things there whereby I was thinking you know I don't know if I'm really going to qualify for this so anyhow I filled out the application and sure enough heard back you know a week or two later no I didn't qualify so when I looked into the the basics of it and, and got into the finer points of it uh and as well, after Trudeau made this announcement, I mean, Yvonne had it on her Facebook page, and I had Yvonne as a friend, and I seen it, and, and you know, I, I kind of told her about it after the fact, uh, about, you know, being denied the application. Uh, I come to find out that it's only residents that's connected to the Newfoundland grid or the grid in Labrador. From on the coast, from Lansalou to, from Lansaclair to Nain, all of those communities are supposedly on diesel-generated power, which will cause you not to qualify for these disincentive program that the government is offering because you're, you're you're on diesel power. What they're saying, you got to be on the grid for electricity, you know, and up, if you're burning oil, then you can upgrade to electricity. You qualify for the. Uh, or the benefits back. Do you understand where I'm going? I do. So is that power that's coming from the Charlottetown generator? No, it's coming from a diesel plant. Well, this this is what leads me to another story. In, in, in the early 90s, I actually worked with Hydro here in the Straits. And during that time, there was a uh, interconnection with Quebec. There, there was a, an hydro process, pro, uh, an hydro thing in Quebec that uh, was, a, was uh, the, the Labrador could purchased the power from Quebec, which is what they did. They connected with Quebec, which eliminated the need for a diesel plant in Lancelot. Uh, during that time, Hydro had planned to shut down this diesel plant. So the permanent source of power was coming from Lake Robinson in Quebec. Uh, 
the morning that I went to work at 8 o'clock, I met 300 people at the gates of the Hydro building, adamant not to have this diesel plant shut down, to keep it as a standby plant. So they, uh, during their negotiations, they ended up keeping the plant because the residents of the coast didn't want it to be dismantled and then later on in the future have problem with this hydro process in Quebec and have to go back on diesel. So the residents did get what they wanted. The diesel plant was kept there in Lancelot as a standby plant only. Our permanent source of power is from an hydro processing plant in Quebec. Yet the residents from Lancelot to Red Bay still can't benefit from this announcement that Trudeau announced in, in, in late October. Now, as to the reason why that that won't, I don't know. Because we are supposed to be on hydro with Quebec. Now, in the in the points, like I said, it do state there that residents have to be connected to the electricity grid, either in Newfoundland or Labrador. But in the in the situation for Labrador, you know, it eliminates half the population because from, from Lance to Clare to Maine, which is encompassing, I would guess, 12 or 14 communities, there's no good for any one person to apply for this incentive program to change from oil to, to electric because you're going to be disqualified right off the bat because they're on diesel power already. Yeah, if you're all off-grid houses are not eligible for the program, which is sort of bizarre because if we're talking about uh, heating your home with diesel-generated energy, you would think that would be a prime opportunity for people to move away from that source of heat. It's just sort of a strange carve-out. Uh, it is, and, and, and the funny thing that, well, I don't understand about it, and I'm talking facts here now because I just friends of mine that did this. Uh, one friend of mine had electric heat. You know, so he didn't he didn't have to upgrade or anything. But no, they said that the the uh, heat pump is a more efficient unit. He applied for funding and got five thousand dollars to upgrade to a heat pump. In the meantime, he's still keeping his electric heat, but you know, technically he's supposed to use his heat pump. And that's supposed to be more efficient. But the price of fuel here right now is just crazy. Like I'm burning eleven to fourteen hundred dollars a month. Uh, just to heat my house. My mom is 89 years old, approaching 90, and still lives by her on her own, thank God, to some extent. And she's purchasing oil, same thing, 11 to $1,400 a month from September to May. That's what people are paying if you're heating your home with, with, with oil. Now, like I said, I reached out to Yvonne. Uh, she did respond to me. I talked to her constituency assistant, and her words to me was that Yvonne was livid. She she wasn't aware of this or something. And, you know, she she told her to get on the phone with St. John's and see what can be done here. Now, I did reach out again today. But like I said, I haven't talked to him since. That's three weeks ago. But I was just looking for some information. Like, you could call the audio line. But, you know, unfortunately, the people you talk to are not the ones that's knowledgeable about it. And you can't get a, a direct answer. But... You know, so so they're okay with with me burning the oil, but I can't get any rebate because this area is being said that it's on a diesel-generated line. So hence the fact that they're not going to give you electric, and then they have to burn more fuel to supply you with that electricity because it's on a diesel plant. Yeah, and the... 
the department you need to go to on this type of stuff is Natural Resources Canada. But you mentioned five thousand dollars. One of the uh, grants that one of your friends got was that Canada Greener Homes? Uh, yes, it probably was the Canada Greener Homes. That was the first one that came out, and now uh, this one here, I'm looking at it here now. Actually, on October twenty sixth. Uh, you know, more, you eat your own great news with the new oil to electric incentive program. It's true, take charge of Newfoundland. Uh, you can receive up to 17000 to transition your own from oil to electric-based heat. And it goes on to say that 90% of the electricity in Newfoundland and Labrador comes from clean, renewable sources. You know, I would suggest that anyone burning oil in any of those areas, I don't think there's very many, but... In the area that I'm talking about, from 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 Lance Clair to Maine, I would think that there would be quite a few. You know, the ones that don't burn wood. You know, and a lot of them do that just because they, they you know, can't afford to burn oil very well. That's another exception inside this oil to heat pump affordability is if you have access to Canada's Greener Homes grant or the loan, which is an interest-free loan up to $40,000, if you've accessed that, you're not eligible for this. And the, the program you're talking about, the $157 million from the province, is different than the federal program, which is all based on median income as well. So I don't know how the carve-out worked for that portion of Labrador because it makes absolutely no sense. That's exactly the type of energy we're trying, or the government is suggesting we try to move away from. Exactly, exactly. Now, I, I do see the point. Now, in this area, it's a little bit different because, like I said, we've got this Lake Robinson issue there. We, you know, technically, we're supposed to be on and hydro-generated power now, I mean, which I mean hydro-generated, water-generated versus diesel, you know, and that's the area from Lance Clair to Ridney. Like, you know, I can remember 30 years ago, they did connect it with Robinson Lake in Quebec to supply us with power, and they shut down our diesel plant, made it a standby one. So that's another issue there, why the residents of Lance Clair to Ridney can't get it if they are said to be on a permanent source of supply from Quebec, you know. Now, to hear your... Uh, North of that, you know, the Charlottetown area and up towards northern Labrador, I mean, every single one of those communities have diesel electricity. Now, there was one other issue I'd like to bring up now. I discussed this with other people, and I've got your answers on it as as to why this wasn't done, but I'm still not sure. I'm no electrical engineer by any stretch. I do have some knowledge of it. But the diesel plant in Lancelou, two miles from that diesel plant is a line coming from Muskrat Falls going going to uh, Portal Point across to Newfoundland under, under water and across Newfoundland to Soldier's Pond and then from there to Nova Scotia. So I don't know why with, with, with the great people that we have here that someone didn't come up with, boys, why can't we supply the coast of Labrador with this power from Muskrat Falls? which is a, a, a spit in the bucket to what's produced in there. You know, now the reasoning that I'm getting for that is because the power leaving Muskrat Falls is DC power. Yep. Right? Yep. And it's and it got to be converted to AC in order for us to use it here on the coast. And what they're telling me is the cost to do that is that extravagant is not worthwhile to do it. Now, I don't know if that's correct or not. Well, that's the argument that they've made. And, you know, it is quite something when you stand back and think about it. Labrador is where it's all being produced, yet so many people in Labrador won't get one megawatt of any energy coming from that particular project, yet suffered all of the environmental concerns. 
Not a megawatt. You won't get a watch. I won't get a watt. I just chose megawatt. Just popped out of my mouth. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But it seems like you know. And in that instance, I mean, uh, we have a, a switchyard here at the diesel plant, Lancelot. You know, could have been some sort of a transformer thing that, you know, that 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 power could have been transferred to AC, and and be used even for. And and when you're talking that, you know, you're talking even from Lancelot to Red Bay. Now, if you want to spend a few more dollars, you can go right to Mary's Arbor or Cartwright even, and then take all of those people off of diesel-generated power. You know, they went a few years ago and installed poles to supply an Internet to southeast coast of Labrador, Charlottetown, Mary's Arbor, and they stuck poles right down along yeah. at a cost of millions, you know. I'm sure something can be done, but I, like I was just looking at it, like I said, I'm new back to the area and just getting, you know, but, but as the muskrat falls, billions and billions of dollars, if they had to waste another billion and put in a switchyard that they could transfer the power to AC, and then you, you've got no worries with those diesel plants in seven or eight communities. So it baffles me, but I, like I said, I reached out okay. to Yvonne, you know, and, I, and I'd like a little bit more information on it, if you could find someone, you know, but... I'll continue to listen, and I'll continue to try and do what I can do. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't see much light at the end of the tunnel because it's pretty well spilled out. Well, obviously, there's a reliance on diesel in Labrador. Look no further back in 2019 when the Charlottetown uh, facility was destroyed by fire. What did we decide to do? Put another diesel generator up there. Yeah, so, put another diesel up there. Now, I've, I've heard also there that they were talking about a mega one supplying uh, diesel generator power to three or four communities in, in uh down in Charlottetown, Mary's area. Now, I don't know where that went, but I know it did. Was was in the news for a while. Yeah, but I'll see what I can figure out. I appreciate the time, Stan. Yeah. Thanks for the call. Yes, no problem, Betty. You have a great day. You too, sir. Bye bye. Right. Thank you. Uh, very quickly on the eligibility issue, it's also tested against your uh, your income, right? And you have to be at the median income or below. There's not one set number there because it varies from province to province. So there's a calculator, I'm pretty sure, on the eligibility page. It's also it has to be your primary residence. You have to own the home, and importantly, if you have availed of the Canada Greener Homes grant and or the loan, you are not eligible for this particular program. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Dave wants to talk about base. George and healthcare. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? Not bad, buddy. Not bad at all. I'm uh, about to approach a topic that is certainly not a new one. And I guess certainly hasn't had plenty of lip service paid to the issue over the years by all governments too by the way not just government now i'm talking government's past and what i'm talking about <clears throat> is the basic deterioration of health care in bay st george bay st george south area in particular the west coast in general we are absolutely beyond crisis stage as far as our health care is concerned. Anybody who says, well, that's a great statement, how can you make that statement? Well, I'm going to go a little bit above and beyond the one that I normally make where I would place the blame directly at the feet of Western Health or at Department of Health in Newfoundland under the minister and direct guidance of the premier. This deterioration of our health care has gotten to the point where it's actually 
beyond crisis. It's that emergency state now. Yesterday, I had, I guess it was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I had a former high school teacher of mine come in to tell me, basically, almost reduced to tears. I had spent so many years in the teaching profession, and his wife, who was in the medical profession for 30 years, was now handed the following letter. I'll just read a portion of it so you get the gist of it. As you know, we are short-staffed at the medical clinic in Stephenville. We had sincerely hoped to have had another doctor before now on staff with us. Unfortunately, we're still waiting and may be waiting for some while. I've been doing my best to carry as many patients as I can so that people are not left without a family physician. But it's not fair to any patient for me to continue to carry more than I can provide service to as one person. For that reason, I am reducing the number of patients under my direct care. Unfortunately, this letter is to inform you that you are one of the many patients that I need to release from my practice. Then it goes on to detail how, well, best of luck, and I hope you can find a new health care provider. And at her age, with the number of medical issues that she has, I don't think the task of finding proper medical care should have been placed upon her. There should be a suggestion as to where she could possibly go. But this doctor's letter is completely serving the purpose of showing that he's got to reduce. He's about one doctor in this area. And I'll also add that this area is down roughly 14 doctors in a small area of Bay St. George. Most of the clinics that were here have closed. We're down, I think, roughly 14 doctors from what our normal level is. Stephen Mill Hospital get staffed by the couple of doctors that they got looking out to it, and God love them, I hope I don't lose them, but they're, they're worked dead. I've seen times where the wait, waiting time is like 18, 20 hours at emergency there. Now it's to the point where when you look at it, they'll always pass it off. If you go after your your federal politicians and say, well, health care is a provincial thing, no, it's not. Here's the mandate that's actually written by the Federal Department of Health. Health Canada partners closely with other federal departments, agencies, provincial, territorial governments, and health organizations. Our partnerships enable Health Canada to ensure that its efforts meet the needs of all Canadians, including specific at-risk groups such as children, First Nations people, and seniors. We have every one of those demographics in our area. And right now what I'm saying is that government is deficient in their fiduciary right. Their most fiduciary obligation to us as citizens is in the provision of health care and adequate health care at that. Last week, I had to attend to the Health Sciences Center for an issue of my own diabetic foot care that was basically an ulcer needing some type of operation or whatever that had gone left for about four years here on the West Coast, mostly because I, for one, don't have a family doctor. We've been juggling 
nurse practitioners on a regular basis in our region, all of which have been fantastic, no complaint with them. Just is not there long enough for the provision of long-term care or continued health care. And now we see the problem and the disconnect between trying to have cooperation between Eastern Health, shall we say, and Western Health, where I came from. While in there, they tried to get a doctor, a family physician for me, that would manage the medical end of my case, which would be the diabetes management, monitoring, optimizing, getting it in line with the best it can. I'm doing as good as I can with it, and it has come a lot, a lot better. But Before I have to get to the news, why was the doctor dropping a patient from the roster? Just because they're reducing their own personal workload, or is there something else to it? Because the workload is too high, and they don't feel that they're providing adequate care to the size and the number of patients that they're currently seeing. And that in itself is very alarming. It's not news to me, I'd say, nor to you. But the problem that we have here is that all of these doctors that have left has further put a strain on our local emergency department, which is very seriously understaffed and and operating in, in deficit of capacity all the time. But nothing's being done. Now, what I'm highlighting is we're about to see two or 3,000 people extra here in Bay St. George going to be involved in, a, in, in big projects, big corporate projects where all these people are going to be here. And I think it's our responsibility to say we can look out to them pretty good while, we're, while they're here. If we're trying to attract them to the area to work, we should at least guarantee that they got good health care. Nobody can guarantee that from Western Health back. Not at all. As a matter of fact, it'll further burden our system that's incapable of looking after the people that we have here now. And it's about time that somebody up to the plate, from the Premier, the Minister of, of, of Health, and I'm going to fire this out there for our federal uh, uh, MPs, and in our case it's Goody Hutchings here, that Health Canada has to ensure its efforts meet the needs of all Canadians. I guarantee you that effort is not being met in Bay St. George right now. Not at all. And in terms of recruitment and retention, well, that's just something that sounds like good speaking points when, whenever somebody in a position of authority has a mic in front of their face. And that's about as much effort and effective effort that's gone into it. We didn't need a new hospital in Cornerbrook. We got a $750 million building with a thousand extra parking spots, and I don't know what the thousand extra parking spots are for because there won't be no extra staff there to look after them. And if we look at the fact that there were portions of Stephenville Hospital that never had opened the day that they started building this new hospital in Cornerbrook, we had sections of our hospital. There was a neonatal uh, section of our hospital, great, nice, big wing of our hospital that has never opened from the day it was actually put in there, from the first day. Well, I guess... Basically, most talking points for the provision of health care have been political-based ones, not common-sense ones or not need-based scenarios. Because right now, if the health accord comes in and does what it should do to Stephenville Hospital, we're going to see the closure of almost 100 hospital beds on the west coast of Newfoundland. There's 50 less in the hospital that's being built now, and there's 40-odd beds in Stephenville that will close 
as inpatient beds. That remains to be seen if the province is going to follow along with what's prescribed in the health accord. There's already examples of them not doing that. For instance, with obstetrics in central Newfoundland, the health accord said one obstetrics unit to be in Grand Falls, Windsor. Now we see they're going to restore one in Gander as well. So it's hard to know whether or not that blueprint will be followed the way we were told it would be followed. Dave, I'm late for the news, but I appreciate the time. I hope you're well. Well, coming around, but it's basically only been because I've been able to access health care on the East Coast, which impacts everybody over there as well. We need better here. They could even look at doing like something, make a Stephen Mill Hospital a center where you would have a bunch of, uh, of uh, doctors on staff. We don't need to replace 14. Let's say we get half of them, but they operate out of Stephen Mill Hospital. It also got an airport five minutes away. Mm-hmm. Great spot to op- operate air ambulance. All kinds of reasons to keep it open, but it involves a bit of thought that hasn't gone into it. I appreciate the call, Dave. I'm late for the news. Stay in Thank touch. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's see. Break time. When we come back, Annette, you're next to talk about what we're seeing at Bannerman Park. Paul wants to talk about today in history. Well, that's an interesting one. He sent me an email a little bit earlier. Then, Jimmy, you're also in the queue. Stay right there. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Annette, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. I won't take up too much of your time. Um, I'm calling about the people in Bannerman Park. And I'm just calling to say that what a wonderful thing it was that these students from university with their professor saw things in the raw like they did. Because you know something? The people behind desks and the people in power don't seem to know what it's all about. It is so sad. I grew up in that area of town. I grew up on Ronald's Cross. We lived in Bannerman Park. There was one red brick building down there that had a bathroom and that bathroom was always open and there were two men that passed on now lord of mercy on them mr marr and mr hooky and in the night time they used to take turns at 12 o'clock closing the bathroom and that and i'm not young that was years and years ago we weren't allowed down there in the night time but it was our playground because we had no gardens on Rollins cross Nobody had a back garden. And to think that these people are left down there with no facility, what in the name of God are the powers that be thinking about? Where is the, have they got any hearts at all or any feelings? I don't think so. They've really leaned on the line that, you know, it would come with additional security costs and then the potential for vandalism and drug use and what have you. But let's be honest here. If there's no bathroom between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m., what do we think people are doing? Exactly. Yeah, uh, it's, anyway. I mean, the bit of dignity that, they, that, that Almighty God has given these people is gone. They're being treated not even as good as animals. An animal knows he can go to a tree and not have the the police after him and go to the bathroom. But these are human beings. What? Where are are the powers that be coming from? I mean, we have a doctor at the top of the province. We have educated people, so-called, at at City Hall. can't they get down to earth? They all didn't have these these jobs and these names growing up. They're just ordinary people like you and me. 
But why are they so distant and so black and white about this? I don't know. And I mean, even the province itself is rejecting even putting a porta potty there. I can't understand why. Someone sent me along a copy of an email they received in response, and it simply said the department will not be putting a porta potty there on colonial building property. Why? Like, what's the issue? If we had the uh, folk festival in Bannerman Park over the uh, summer, then of course exactly. it'd have porta potties for the attendees, the concert goers, but we can't seem to do it for people who are homeless exactly. and have nowhere to go. Patty, you hit the nail on the head. When the telly ten is on, when there's anything on, that's the first thing that you see all along the porta potties. When the when the workers are working downtown, what do you see? The same thing. But for these people who have next to nothing. God bless them, is all I can say. But, you know, it's a good thing that these students saw things in the raw because they'll know what it's about. And they'll be able to say, yes, I saw people with nothing, not even a place to go to the bathroom. It's an extraordinarily sad state of affairs. That much is for sure. Well, like I said, we have a premier who's a doctor. We got City Hall down there all educated people, so-called. For God's sake, put yourselves in the, these people's shoes. Some of them don't have shoes. Put yourself in their place. Go out for a night and try to go through what they're going through. They'll certainly change. hundred percent. You know, that's the concept that people are discussing, whether or not the different levels of government actually understand what's going on here. Because the immediate reaction seems to be pretty paltry at this moment in time. If it wasn't for people like the Salvation Army were down there yesterday delivering a meal of macaroni and cheese. If it wasn't for them, like the Lions Club are going down today to provide them with a bowl of stew and a cup of coffee, what have you. Just imagine if there wasn't these not-for-profits or service groups jumping in and trying to help out. Because it doesn't look like government's doing a whole whole lot you know big announcements with building homes but that home will not be built before the snow flies the government and the, and the powers that be are sickening and they're sickening to people like us who who, who can see what's happening so I'm, I'm calling on, on on mr breen and all that bunch down there and even our government people for god's sake put yourself in their places and you'll certainly see and certainly see what it's all about but get off your thrones and come down to earth. We're all going back to dust and ashes anyway. So come down to earth and and see how see if you can see if you can just have just the tiniest bit of sympathy for people who have nowhere to go. Can you imagine having nowhere to go? God. Yeah, no, I, I honestly oh. to God, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine what they're no. going through. And days like today, here yeah. comes the wind and here comes the rain. Yeah. And, you know, last time we had a bit of a rainstorm, it's flattened their supply tent. And, of course, everything was soaked and wet and the yeah. garbage was piling up. And yeah. people are turning a blind eye to it. Yeah. And we just cannot have it. There's going to be endless examples of the next thing you know, if there's 30 people living there now, how many of those 30 will be in the hospital? Right. Exactly. How many of those 30 will be in the penitentiary? So yeah. there's, the problem is real, and it's only getting worse. Uh, yeah. I appreciate you making time, and I'm sure you're not alone in the way you're thinking about this. No, that. I'm not alone. I'm not alone, but I mean, I'm just calling on the powers that be to come off your thrones and go and see what's on the go. These are the people who, who need help. And, and, and give them what help you can. Anyway, thank you, Patty. Happy Christmas. Same to you. Thanks for the call, Annette. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, Jimmy, stay right there. He wants to talk about guaranteed annual income. Don't go away.
Welcome back to the program. Well, the annual report on food bank usage has been out now for a few weeks. And what it showed is nearly 2 million people, including more employed people than ever before, used food banks in March of 2023 alone. That's a 32% increase from the same month last year and more than a 78% increase from March of 2019. So it's Giving Tuesday to talk about what's going on at the food bank at Bridges to Hope. Joining us is the executive director, Jody Williams. Good morning, Jody. You're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? <laughs> Pretty good, man. That time of year, you know? Tis that time of year, of course. We'll get into the opportunity for people to be generous and donate here on Giving sure. Tuesday to your organization. But those food bank numbers, does that jive with what you're seeing? 78% yeah, higher than March 2019. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, last month we saw 75 new people that have never been to a food bank before and before before COVID, it would take a year for us to hit that. And that was just one month. So, I mean, that's a number that's um, it's scary. Or it's certainly an indicator of where we're headed. And also, uh, the number of uh, children that are availing of our services has gone up almost 100% due to um, you know parents not working, or sorry, are working, just not making enough money, because that's kind of the newest demographic. And that's why food bank usage is up all across Canada, right, pretty much. The numbers regarding children are really quite something. The report yeah. said that in this province, children represent about a third of the people coming into food banks. Yet in this province, children only represent 20% of the population, but a third of the children are going to food banks. Yeah, we saw 300 children last month out of about 1,000 clients. So, yeah, that's, that's about right, 30% here. It's uh, horrible. You know, it's a time of life, too, when, um, you know, the kids kind of need the eating is certainly healthy food when their brain is growing and that time of life it's uh, it's just a horrible it's the most heart-wrenching thing about uh running the food bank for sure seeing children and seniors too i find <laughs> both of those are again at, at times of their life right when nutrition is kind of key no question so we can talk about demand but then of course you got to match it up with supply times are tight more people are going to you times are tight and people who are working on are you know just making ends meet just being able to keep the wolf away from the door so how's the yep. supply look uh well we you know basically what happens is every year I take a huge chance uh like our food budget is gone over double what is it what i made it back in january um so we kind of go in debt right up until this time of year that's the truth we just go in debt every month um uh, and we, we hope that uh this time of year we have it we have a good fundraising campaign uh i mean every single day we literally have a worker that works full-time all she does is go around the shop and try to find the best deals and we i mean we fill up the shelves and then they empty fill up shelves empty there's never really a supply of food here that's a stockpile it's, it's really like a day-to-day thing. Have you we been able to have stockpiles of food? Uh, say again, but this is kind of again pre before COVID when we lived in a different world. I mean, it's amazing. Just to take that sentence as a standalone, it's a different world since COVID started. I mean, and it really truly is. There's not one facet of life that hasn't changed. Nope, it's not. And it, um, you know, I think. Sadly, I think we were all under the uh, impression or certainly hope that, you know, we, things would go back to some sense of normal. But um, obviously, uh, things seem to be getting worse, if anything. I just heard that lady on before me. It's just heart-wrenching to hear. Are you seeing many people from that particular tent encampment coming your way? 
Yeah, we get people for sure coming up. Um, you know, I wouldn't really even say like how many people in mean, a number, but we certainly do get people coming up from the academy to get some groceries, um, what they can use down there. Uh, you know, sometimes, um, and even some of our clients, I don't people realize some of our clients don't have stoves, uh, you know, or like we're giving out can openers, or they some people only have a hot plate, some people only have a microwave. Um, you know, again, all these things that uh, we take for granted, you know, the, <laughs> the normal, the privileged folk, I should say. Um, you know, even like when we're giving out, we were, now we give out gift cards. Uh, I'll tell you a, a good example. Well, we have gift cards we give out every Christmas. Uh, the registration for that is usually Monday to Friday um, that week. You know, it's about 400 gift cards. We were gone in 50 minutes on Monday. It was horrible. It was the worst feeling ever to have gone through all our gift cards in 50 minutes. And then I had to go through 78 messages on my phone. The most heart-wrenching stories you ever hear in your life. It's it's hard to even know what to say anymore about these types of uh, issues, and it's not unique to this province. The numbers are staggering. There was no, a, a new no. story yesterday: food bank usage in Ontario up forty percent month over month. God, but I don't know. I mean, uh, again, it's not a. It's just, again, I say this a million times. So everyone, you know, it's not really a food problem, right? It's an income problem, and uh, well, sorry, it's a perfect storm. Food's costing a fortune. I don't care how much money you make. I mean, no, nobody likes going to the grocery store anymore. The days are over. Um, and then on top of that, right, it's the income on the other end, right, just not matching up. So I don't foresee. Uh, I'm just. I've met with the government so many times at this point that I just give up on them. Honestly. Jody, here on Giving Tuesday. So, anything particular in store for your organization today, or just the the standard ongoing fundraising efforts? Yeah, we have, we have a Giving Tuesday campaign happening. You know, we have some videos out stuff today. We have uh, we sent an email to our regular donors, certainly. But if people want to help us out, that'd be great. And head over to our website at bridgestohope.ca. We're also in the middle of our Christmas campaign which is uh, entitled Miracle on Cookstown Road. You know, there's one thing about this time of year for me. It's the saddest time of year, but it's also the happiest time of the year because I, I just see so much kindness, you know, for strangers. It's like the, the tent city that I'm right? Who's helping them out right now? Strangers, right? Strangers yep. helping strangers. So with that, that always impresses me, you know, it warms my heart. Well, we need something to warm our hearts because there's a lot out there. It's overwhelming. And like I say, you know, some of these issues regarding strife is like drinking from a fire hose all day, every day. It's just a lot. Jody, you're doing great stuff, man. Keep it up. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, just uh, wish everyone a happy holiday. Be safe. You too, pal. Stay in touch. Bye, buddy. See you. That's Jody Williams, the executive director at Bridges to Hope. Let's go to line number one. Jim, you're on the air. Uh, yes, Patty. Yeah, I would. Uh, the uh, guaranteed income thing. Uh, didn't uh, didn't uh, in Manitoba about thirty years ago or something have a, a small town there where they experimented, the government experimented with guaranteed annual income, and uh, apparently the PCs came in and they got rid of it. They closed it down. The files were buried, and uh, somebody recently dug them out and found out that it was a success. And uh, you know, and. Uh, it, you know, in fact, it reduced a lot of things. It, you know, it reduced uh, the hospital visits, uh, the uh, crime, it, and uh, it encouraged people to uh, 
some people went got more education some people started little businesses and all that stuff they didn't all just take the money and uh, you know in fact if they did it was a, I'm sure it was a minority and just wasted away you know what I mean so uh, but there seems to be such a great resistance because I was involved with kind of uh, social welfare you know back in the 60s and uh, you know even back then they were uh, somebody was proposing it but uh, and the government's always resisted uh, I wonder why it's a good question. So the uh, the town you're talking about in Manitoba is Dauphin, Dauphin, yes, Manitoba. Yes. And yes. so everybody was on guarantee, or pardon me, basic income guarantee. So they everyone got a check, and some of the results are really quite clear. Now, it did come with a lack of harm reduction policies because they did indeed experience a bit of an uptick in uh, addictions at the time, but okay. nobody stopped working. Right? I mean, that, that's the argument people make is that if you're going to talk about the lack of productivity in the country, you talk about the lazy nature of some uh, Canadians at certain ages. The fact of the matter is when we tried it in the 70s in Dauphin, Manitoba, nobody, zero people stopped working. Yeah, well, there you go. So why are the governments resisting it? I mean, you know, I mean, what is it? Is it the, the old... Um, uh the old Protestant sort of, you know, uh, you got to punish everybody and everybody's a sinner. Is, is, what, is that what it is? I don't know what the hell. It's hard to know. I mean, because very quickly, uh, it's a good example of how we don't have nuanced conversations any longer, right? If people say, well, socialism, you're going to run out of other people's money to echo Margaret Thatcher. The yeah, fact yeah. of the matter is we have a full, entire, comprehensive suite of social safety net programs, all kinds of them. There's a patchwork of provincial, federal, and municipal supports out there. What we haven't done is done the math. Let's look at how many people are on these systems, how much money are in all these different pots of money, how could we do it better? Because, you know, when you have a patchwork of different supports, guaranteed it's going to be unnecessarily complicated, it's going to be uh, unnecessarily bureaucratic, and there's probably a better way to do it. So looking at that particular experiment is probably a good place to start. I think there's also maybe a bit of a misunderstanding what we're actually talking about, because when we talk basic income, some people will either use universal basic income, which means regardless if you're rich or poor, you get a, a check, and some of that is harvested back from the folks who don't really need it via taxes, or guaranteed basic income, based on your actual income level. Guaranteed in this province, with the 22,000 people on social assistance, if there was a different way that we used government money to support them, we'd probably be better off. The argument on the pro side is that when people don't have enough money, to pay the bills and to eat properly, what happens is they're more likely to interact with the healthcare system, the most expensive thing in the country. They're more likely to have some sort of unfortunate interaction with the criminal justice system. They'll use uh, social work programs. That comes at a cost. We refuse to do the math. Hopefully the committee that's been struck inside the House of Assembly members are going to do some actual math as opposed to talk about the concept. So because uh, so what you're saying is basically if uh, I think if is uh, that if uh, if there was a guaranteed basic income based on your income you know and not just given to the rich and everything given everybody like uh, no which we should not do yeah right 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 uh, if there was that then uh, uh, and it streamlined the sort of um, all this patchwork of provincial federal municipal help and volunteer help across the country if it streamlined that uh, you know we'd be a lot better off and save a lot more money uh, for, to support those programs, right? A hundred percent. So they actually tried it in, a, I can't remember where it was in Ontario. Uh, it was a pilot project back in 2017. When Doug Ford got elected, they scrapped it. There's a 2021 report from Canada's Parliamentary Budget Office, which I think is a valuable source of information. It said that, I'll just try to remember off the top of my head, 
if the country created a national basic income program, similar to what they were trying in Ontario, it would cost around $85 billion, but it would cut poverty rates by over two-thirds. So do the math. Poverty costs us all. Exactly. So, but uh, and uh, the other thing, a little point at the end there. Um, uh, I think I can home in on at least one of the reasons, uh, main reasons why the uh, uh, city or whatever will not put uh, forty potties in the park or any place like that. They don't want to encourage long settlements there. They want to discourage it. So that's one way of doing it. It's forcing them to go somewhere else for a bathroom. That's true, because what we could see is that if there's more supports and services offered, that's the worry, that becomes an outdoor emergency shelter, yeah. right? And it'll be there for the long term. So, well, I, I, I think they should put the people first and stop worrying about their uh, media. If they, if they, uh, it would at least uh, keep them from having to poop or pee all around the area and in the cold and everything. And uh, while, while, while next year maybe they'll have a few, a few proper dwellings ready ready right it's going to take time to build houses and there's a lot to that it's you know getting the developers interested in doing it making sure it's affordable on the other end and then we've got to eliminate some of the time between identifying a piece of property and going through the permitting process between then and how when a home is built is just far too long and the concern is immediate uh really appreciate the time this morning jim but i just wanted to throw in one more sure. point before you, you i go um Based on what we were talking about and how um, the uh, political parties seem to resist it, it seems like uh, you think the PCs would learn something from that, you know what I mean? But they always come in and try to cancel stuff like that. Yeah, well... And, and even though I'm not in love with the Liberals, at the same time I realize they do do a little bit more for... Uh, the downtrodden than the PCs do. So, Well, there's only two national parties that have ever mentioned uh, national basic income in their platform. That's the Greens and the NDP. The Liberals have no platform. The Conservatives no platform. The Bloc no platform. No, the PPC, but I mean, what I mean is the, 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 uh, with the pressure of the NDP, uh, they do more. You know what I'm saying? So I know the NDP is behind it all, but, uh, you know, at least they... They, of course, uh, out of fear of getting defeated, I guess they do it, right? Anyway. Yeah, and of course, on the federal front, the NDP have apparently extended the deadline to the federal Liberals to bring forward universal pharmacare. They're looking for whatever they're calling more results. What that means, I have no earthly idea. So it looks like they pumped the brakes. Something I can see, I can see the drug companies fighting that. Oh, no question. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. So it's 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 like uh, engineered poverty. <laughs> poverty costs us all. It doesn't matter if you're the one percenter. Poverty comes at a cost, not only societally and morally, but it comes with a financial cost. And we just got to wrap our mind around that. And yeah, somehow that's impossible. Uh, but these people, uh, the leaders, they're in their own financial world and they can't fully relate to other people's needs. You know what I mean? So. I do. And I appreciate the time, Jim. Thanks a lot. Okay, that's it. Right. Take good care. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Paul, you are next to talk about today in history. Love it. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm pretty good, actually. Enjoying the weather. Good. Um, I want to talk about uh, today in history and uh, how we look at our history, the cultural memory that's attached to it, and how we uh, use history to go forward in the future. Sure. Um, 
uh, as we uh, saw on the weekend, um, with respect, I'm not sure if it was Saturday or Sunday, but it was the 90th anniversary of the Holmodor. Uh, Holdemore, I'm, I apologize to uh, Ukrainians and Ukrainian Newfoundlanders about that in respect to their history. Um, and on that uh, Saturday, I believe, or Sunday, I read an article uh, on CBC where a lady uh, said, uh, those who do not remember their history uh, will relive it. And that brings me up to today's topic of conversation. If you Google the Holdemore, uh, I guess your listeners can find out um, what happened there it was this uh, imposed uh, famine on the Ukrainian people by the Soviets and led to the rise of the right in Ukraine and the rest is history. But if you Google what happened in Newfoundland and Labrador today in history, apparently Google is going to tell you nothing. And uh, to me, that's a real important thing because what happened in Newfoundland and Labrador is meant to stay not only in our history, but in my humble opinion, as they say, in world history. Um, I sent you an article earlier today uh, by uh, David Hale, the late economist. It's uh, called The Newfoundland Lesson. It was published in International Economy in 2003, and it talks about this very matter, uh, Argentina, Austria, the, uh, the creation of the IMF, Bretton Woods, that sort of thing. And uh, essentially what happened, to backtrack another bit, on November 27th, these events transpired in the colonial building that we're talking about so much lately. Uh, the Newfoundland legislature convened the last legislature of the elected uh, democracy of Newfoundland. And uh, the telegram reports there was an unusual crowd to see the speech from the throne, but there were no bills put forward at all. The next day, which is today, November 28th, 1933, 90 years ago, which is still the present in some people's memories, I guess we can thank uh, the likes of people a little older than Gus Echegary for that. Uh, the, the Prime Minister uh, stood in the floor of the legislature and introduced a motion to uh, vote the uh, House out of existence. The Liberals left the floor and the government voted 24 to nothing to dissolve the democracy. And uh, I'd like to quote from Dr. Hale if you want to say a few words. I'm not sure the relevance of this, but it is important, I think, to remember our history. Now, I did see your email, and I have sent that along to my personal email so I can have an opportunity to give it a better read. So is this about the debt issue between the government of Canada and Britain paying uh, some two-thirds of our country's interest payment on the 1st of July, 1933? First of January? This is, this is very much about the debt issue, and the actions okay. of the Alderdice government were very much taken under duress. Um, we can see that now in the context of history, which is why it's so important to remember this. If I may quote from Dr. Uh, Dr. Hale's uh, uh, work there so that your listeners don't have to look it up, but this led to uh, what's known as commissioned government. That's right. It was a dictatorship in Newfoundland for 16 years. There were no elections whatsoever, except I believe in the city of St. John's. I'm not sure about that. And I believe they forced Marystown to become a uh, municipality. I'm not sure. But quoting from Dr. Hale, thus this led, thus on April 1st, 1949, to Newfoundland, therefore, becoming the first dominion of the British Empire ever to become a province of another country without having the action ratified by its own parliament. Confederation Treaty was an act of Britain and Canada, not of Newfoundland. 
the Newfoundland political history of the 1930s is now considered to be a minor chapter in the history of Canada. There is practically no awareness of the extraordinary events which occurred there. The British Parliament and the Parliament of the Self-Governing Dominion agreed that democracy should be subordinate to debt. The oldest parliament in the British Empire after Westminster was abolished. Dictatorship was imposed on 280,000 English-speaking people who had known 78 years of direct democracy. The British government then used its constitutional powers to steer the country into confederation with Canada. Further quote, very brief. If the IMF had existed in 1933, it would have granted emergency debt relief to Newfoundland, and the country would never have given up democracy or independence. Now, as I say, that's 90 years ago. The relevance, it's up for us to decide, but I suggest it is still relevant. Interesting, if, if not relevant. Um, but, you know, with the home door, those things are all happening at the same time. 90 years, it's not really that long, and we need to look further back in our history to find the context. We need to consider the geographical history of the place, because regardless of what's happening in terms of communication, transportation, and development, and our political economy, it's all dependent on our geography. We still haven't been able to overcome that. After 500 years, Newfoundland and Labrador is still the frontier. I think some of that some of that debt related conversation, I think you can go back to the Robert Bond days and the Confederation negotiations of eighteen ninety five. The two major banks in the province collapsed in December of nineteen or eighteen ninety four. And then there was, you know, some of the terms put forward by the British government. We were asking them to pay off some five point five million dollars in debt and it came with some pretty harsh attachments which we rejected. So Canada's uh no Canada's uh what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Delegation, which I believe was led by uh, Mackenzie Bowell, and the province was represented by Robert Bond. So that debt solution issue began all the way back in 1895. Well, it sure did. We lost control of the currency and thus were unable to make any changes during the momentous events of 1929. Also uh, in history, on November 18th, it went on March. It's not something to celebrate, but it's the anniversary of the tsunami in St. Lawrence, and I thought about it and realized that there was nothing in the media about that history either. So I guess what I'm hoping to say with this is that we can uh, look at our history and we can look at, like, especially when it relates to what's happened in Canada and think that history is not completely past. We need to go pre-1949. We need to go back to 1713 and to discover what's happened here in Newfoundland and how we've been unable to master the geography and uh, use the resources of the place to our own benefit. We're always the mercy of outside influences, and every now and then the geography becomes important, and I suggest it is again. And it always will be. And some of those issues regarding what were assets and what were not back in those negotiations included things like the railroad and, you know, there were often 50 sure. cents on, yep. the, on the dollar for some of the debt payment. And anyway, yep. I'll have to revisit well, that because I, I can't remember all the details. I believe I read somewhere that uh, Joey negotiated the sale of the uh, mineral rights for Labrador to uh, John Shaheen, I believe it was, or John C. Doyle, I'm not sure which one, for $11,000. 
Think about that in the context of history. And then add into it the land, uh, the railway, we'll talk about the reed lands and money still being paid to a family regarding those exactly, piece of property. Exactly. The reeds are still benefiting from the, uh, the land that was given to them to the railroad. Benefiting That's richly. Up. That's like 1898, the bond government again. Uh, And and the bond government uh, went through all kinds of machinations to try to uh, renegotiate that contract. It was actually negotiated more in the favor of the Reeds previously. Fascinating stuff. I'm glad you called about it today, Paul. You're always welcome. Okay, thank you very much for your time, sir. And and listen, I appreciate you, man. Uh, Keep up the ability for people to exercise their freedom of expression. I'm glad they do. Thanks, Paul. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, travel nurses, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay South. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Great. You? I'm good, thanks. Uh, Patty, I uh, wanted to call in and touch on the issue that uh, Yvette Coffey, President of the Nurses Union, is that bringing up a travel nurses and uh, and concerns she's raised. I mean, and the concerns are very valid, and it's uh, what's uh, prompted me, I, I guess, to this call. And I guess the call in support of what she's saying. I mean, you know, basically, you're you're paying you're paying quite a, quite a lot more for travel nurses when I mean they have the nurses here. I mean, one question that comes out is why not pay them overtime, and it'll still be a lot cheaper than what a travel nurse is. I mean, you're getting travel nurses are getting preferred shifts over full time and even casual. I mean, what's this about? Like, what if it was? You know, we look at. I mean, we're looking at recruitment. I mean, in areas where you don't have the people there, well, that's fine. You just don't have them, and you got to try to do something to bridge the gap. I get that. But this is a case where the nurses' union is saying we have the people. It would require probably overtime and some shift, shift adjustments and whatnot. But yet, the, I mean, the health documents are showing that they expect it's going to cost like $18.4 million. And apparently the same same coverage could be done with the with local Newfoundland and Labrador nurses for $4.1 million. It just defies logic, Patty, and it's uh, I found it alarming. And, I mean, this is public money. I've said this to you and many others before. This is not, you know, Minister Osborne's Supreme Fury's money. This is public money. And are we getting the best bang for our buck here? And I, I don't think we are. Short answer to that is no, we are absolutely not. So, and the numbers that you just used are over the course of 12 months. So, if the cheapest option, you know, I hate to talk about cheap or expensive when we're talking about healthcare and, and human resources, but the so called cheapest option here, based on collective bargaining, is to offer that overtime to a casual nurse if he or she wants it. So, if we're not doing that, then the question is the obvious one is why? Like, who's making that decision? And what's the. You know, what's the underlying principle between spending more money offered to a travel nurse, an agency nurse, versus people who are on our staff, on our payroll? It makes absolutely no sense in the world. So add that to the fact that even before this became an issue, working on the ward, I'm a registered nurse employed by Newfoundland Health Services, working alongside someone who's employed by a private travel agency, making more than me with flexibility of shift, and then add this to it, it's got to be extremely frustrating. Yeah, it, it defies logic from where I said to, you know, it's, it, I don't understand, like, you're to, you know, you're right to make, who makes those decisions, but I mean, you got, you know, someone representing a nurse union, 5,800 nurses are is screaming out that this is wrong, that we have the, they have the ability to provide the same care and the same service, and, and, and what I'm getting at a much lower price, and I'm, I'm like you, I hate to put dollars and cents on healthcare because we can't, but, you know, and then, so, like, who is making this, who, why is this, who's making the decision, I mean, these are private companies, too. I mean, we look at travel nurses like, you know, 811 and
and the virtual care teledoc. I mean, they're all private industries, and I know, and I know that uh, Miss Coffin has, you know, she's come out and said, and others have said, are we not moving towards privatization? Now, that's a debate, and that'll go on for a long time. We could talk about that. We have enough time today or tomorrow or this week to discuss that issue. But where are we headed to, and what's the purpose beyond it, and who's really benefiting? Because if we can get local nurses in Newfoundland and Labrador to do the same work as travel nurses at a province nurse, and for probably a quarter of the price, again, I'll say it again, it just defies all logic. I think it's it's not good enough, obviously. And it's it comes back to why. I mean, why? I, and I say that question. And when I read the story and heard the story, and I know you had mentioned earlier, and it's kind of come up over time with travel nurses and even all these other groups and the extra cost, I always come back and say, why? I mean, I don't see if it's benefiting us, okay, fine. I'm, I, if I see benefits in any, anyone out there, common sense will tell you, fine, we're good with that. But there's nowhere along the way there's any common sense in this decision of what I can see. And I don't think the department are providing any other than the fact that the minister said he'd love nothing better than get rid of travel nurses. Now you get the you know, nurses, president of nurses, you know, saying, we don't need them. We've got enough people there to do this. Give us a chance at the first. At least give them the first opportunity, Petty. They're not even getting that opportunity. Travel nurses coming in, and like you said, they're working side by side, and someone's making a lot more money than them doing the same work. It defies logic, and it's the most divisive thing you could ever put in the workplace. I don't know if we're going to get any further details or explanation here, but I think we might, given the fact that the union has filed a group policy grievance and six individual grievances on this issue. So that's going to come with some details, whether or not we're actually going to understand them or if they make any sense or if they ever see the light of day remains to be seen. Uh, anything else before we say goodbye this morning, Barry? No, that's it, Pat. I just wanted to raise my voice and add my voice to those concerns. And uh, like you say, I hope government t- takes action because these are valid issues. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care, Barry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Barry Petten is the PC member for CBS. Final word this morning goes to line number four. Good morning, Tina Davies. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Doing today? great. How about you? Really, really good. I, I know I don't catch your show every day, but I do a, an awful lot of the time. And I just wanted to, um, I know it's been brought up that today's Giving Tuesday, uh, but I'm not calling asking for money for Richard's legacy at all, actually, because I know things are tight for everyone. And when we talk about giving, I just want to remind people that it doesn't have to be about money, you know. Uh, we look at things that are, all the things that are wrong with this world, and in each of our opinions, of course, some things are worse than others. Um, that can drive us all a little bonkers. We need to remember that uh, we can't change the world, but we can change ourselves. And we can do that with things other than money. You know, uh, we can give a smile, a hand up, a kind word, you know, gratitude for what we have and what we can give. Uh, all that being said, and I'm really glad, actually, I'm the, your, your last call, because all that being said, I want to tell you, Patty, that um, you do a hell of a job here every day on this show. And I want to commend you on your intelligence, your Tina, is still there? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. You you cut out there for a second. Okay. Yeah, the connection's terrible, unfortunately, Dave. It's... I think we'll have to leave it at that because I, we simply can't hear Tina whatsoever, which is unfortunate. Uh, so, yes, I mean, 
And on a day like today, like we just came through the spend of the Black Fridays and Cyber Mondays, and of course it's important and people want to spread a little Christmas cheer, you know, that's just standard operations. But on a day like today, and uh, look, it's not my money, it's your money, but it's maybe that opportunity, and some of the donations don't need to be massive to make a difference. And I think Tina makes an interesting point, as did Don Connolly earlier, sometimes giving can come in the form of effort and time. Right, because there's so many of these organizations out there, even in the service groups, the world's like the, Ro- the Rotary and the Lions Clubs and what have you. Some new, fresh faces are really required to keep some of the great work that these organizations have been doing over the years. You know, if you look at the roster of some of those groups, the folks who have been there have been there a long time. And they've put forward massive effort and contributions to the community. And maybe, just maybe, if we've been a beneficiary of any of their works in the past, maybe the consideration to join forces with them is something we can consider because people are right. Times are tight. Money is absolutely tight. So it might not be the opportunity for you to make a financial contribution to one group or another today, but maybe even some consideration to be involved in some of those charitable organizations, not-for-profits, or the service clubs. And remember, I mean, the service club used to be a go-to. Everyone in the world of business joined one, not only to be involved in some of the good projects that they bring to bear, but also it was that networking tool that has always been so important. All right, final check on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.